0: Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrall. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-shirt podcast. So Rich, how are you, brother?
1: I'm good, thank you, Chris. Really good. Thanks for getting me
0: on here do you remember right said fred yes i do yeah Uh, Yeah. there we go (laughs) (laughs) which one are you (laughs) i don't know they both looked identical to me (laughs) yeah yeah i know goodbye i'm I'm too sexy for my podcast (laughs) yes brother it's so kind you came on thank you you have the esteemed honor that we have a um a wonderful new producer on the podcast ben hello ben if you if you watch this and you are the first person that ben went right get this guy on the show oh, really
1: wow <laughs> yeah. that's, that's um that is a privilege then absolutely
0: well i i saw some of your facebook stuff you're clearly a nice guy um let's just say from the beginning for people watching the veterans community is just all over the shop at the minute especially with yeah. social media has made it all so divisive and uh, a bit nasty to be honest mm-hmm. yeah my concern and i know yours rich is the same is we're in a suicide epidemic of our brothers and sisters right yeah and something needs to be done yeah and the old school method of just hiding all our misdemeanors or our mm. not so misdemeanors under the carpet it doesn't yeah. work anymore people no. need to talk about substance use um they need to talk about the 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 laws that we have in this area in the country which i think any half intelligent observer would say clearly don't work Where they work for the people that are making a a huge load of money off it but at the same time we're in a situation where if our brothers and sisters can't come forward and say look i've got a problem or i've fallen in with this crowd or you know i started doing this thing and now it's got a bit out of control you know if if they if all they're going to get his old sweats going, Oh, you shouldn't do this. And you should, because that was the old school mentality. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: We're just going to be putting more people in boxes or, you know,
1: yeah. yeah. Totally. Go into
0: the bloody crematorium even more. So for anyone yeah. listening, it's called bought the t-shirt podcast for a reason. We invite interesting people that can add to our lives and that involves education. And, um, enough said rich i just wanted to sort of lay the table because um yeah cool yeah you know, people get confused in
1: this area but uh take it from the beginning mate shall we yeah so i mean i i served in the i joined the third royal tank regiment in 1988 um back in the eighties it, it was a very different army i mean it all was very different back then and you know I, i'll keep this part quite brief because when the berlin war came down in 89 um, they started to reduce the size of the forces over in Germany, which is known as B.A.O.R. at the time. Uh, there are a lot of disbandments, amalgamations, there were a lot of redundancies going on. So we amalgamated with the new 2nd Royal Tank Regiment in 1992. All this was, was progressive and seen as the way forward that the, the British Army was going to move along by slowly withdrawing from, from sort of Central Europe, with Germany and, and slowly reducing the number because there was no longer this imminent threat of a Cold War. Um, the unfortunate thing, I think, for a lot of us at the time, we, we you know, by this this point, I'd done three or four years. Promotion was good; you were sort of moving along nicely with your, with, with your kind of plan to to with your, your military career. And the, the, because of the amalgamations, we just slowed down. Things just ground to a halt. And at the time, we weren't. I wasn't personally seeing the army giving me the future which I had expected from it. I wasn't hoping to see any active service. I had been to Northern Ireland in 1990. We missed the the first Gulf War or Iraq War, uh, which was in 1990, early 91, because we were in Northern Ireland. And I thought, I'm never going to see anything. So I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to get promoted again, because it's all just ground to a halt. I'm going to get out. Mm -hmm. So really in the, in the sort of mid 90s, say 94, 95, there are a huge amount of, of I say, soldiers, because that's the, from my perspective, actually leaving the forces, giving up, handing in a notice and just knocking it on the head because there wasn't really much of a career left. It really slowed down. So I knocked it on the head in 94 to get out in 95. Um, and that's where the problem started. It, it, you, the Army makes you, your, your military training makes you extremely confident in your abilities, which is fair enough. You need to be confident in order to carry out your role in, in wherever you're going to be. Um, so I did a course with the S with the SBS for close protection. Standard course, it was great, it was fantastic with with a guy I served with. Um, you know, it was, it was a company called Task International, we're down in Maidstone four weeks, and then you add this other qualification to an already very confident character of oh I'm a bodyguard and I'm this, and it just elevates your your, your unrealistic expect- expectations so high when you come out that you just think you're better than everything. So you've already set yourself up to fail because what I felt to take into consideration was on coming out of the forces at that time, there was also another however many thousands looking for the same kind of work, the same kind of jobs. So it was really difficult, really, really hard to find steady work. However, I was lucky. I managed to get a job working with my dad, who's ex-police force, um, some colleagues of his doing surveillance and I did some CP work. And this was fantastic. It was kind of like the right job. But what I wasn't really prepared for was that lack of belonging. When I came out, I missed that camaraderie that was part of the army. And although I was never the big one for being in the NAFI bar, I just missed that, that sort of focus feeling of being involved with people all the time, in a sense. If you had something wrong or you were a bit skinned or you had a problem, there's always someone to go to who would listen to you. Yeah, they would probably give you a slap and tell you to put, and sort yourself out but at least you at least you have someone to go to if you're having a bad time and i kind of missed that sense of belonging and that's such a big deal for a lot of guys who come out anyway my thing i wasn't ready for at the same time was i really enjoyed going out i enjoyed going out clubbing and partying as did all of my civilian friends and what i wasn't ready for was this this crazy dance scene which used to be the rave scene back in the I think back in the late 80s when he used to go and find a field somewhere and pull up a lorry with load of speakers and everyone would get completely completely wasted this illegal racing had kind of migrated into the clubs around the uk and i was not ready for that it wasn't a case of the 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 drug side of it initially it was more a case of wow what is going on here everybody was just having such a good time and I was doing door work at the time as well. So I was kind of stood on the outside, still looking in. I was never really felt a part of this, this community because I was the one stood on the door saying, yes or no, watching everyone else have a good time. And I thought, is this, is this what I've come out to? Is this, is this what it is? So I started put, pulling away from the door work on the weekends, and I started going into the clubs and yeah, I started getting introduced into, into drugs. I won't call them recreational drugs because any drug can be recreational if you use it for recreational use. It's a It's something I thought, so ecstasy was the one. And and I gotta be honest, I'm not gonna condone this. I can't condone it. But for me, when I took that first pill, I finally felt like I belonged somewhere again. Because for that duration of of the effects of ecstasy, whether it be one, two, three or four hours, you feel exactly the same as every other person in that room who's done that drug. So all of a sudden you belong to this group of people. So you get that sense of being a part of something. And that's, that, is, that is a massive problem for girls who've been in the forces because you can easily turn to this. And it's so false because you take all these individuals, if let's say there's a hundred people there and you're all completely wired to the moon on these drugs and you're all feeling the same way, the music and the clothes and you're all on the same level. It's so false because you've eventually got to come back to reality. And the reality is you still have got very little in common with all these people around you doesn't mean they're not good people it just means that you're just there you engage in this activity for a while you feel this false sense of belonging and then it just goes it sort of sort of peters out and then, and then it's gone and you left them with just just your emotions and that can be problematic and and add this add sorry add to this your extreme risk-taking behavior which is a lot of us suffer from we need to do something to satisfy that that risk because normality for us just just doesn't fit. We 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 need something wild to make us feel normal again. And I found that I was beginning to get introduced to the supply of the drugs uh, more so because I've got a business mind and a group of friends that I was with at the time. We all used to engage in these activities on the weekend and go out and get get wasted. I'll use that word. Um, we needed to find somewhere to, to get our substance from, and, and I thought, well I'll do it you know it doesn't seem it can't be as bad as getting shot at or i've done worse things in an naffy bar you know so you you kind of stick your hands with us. how bad can it be and it wasn't all of those basic military qualities that you're given in in simple things like control like doing a patrol simple standard stuff just apply those in in that direction i thought this this is easy and again, not condoning it. Please don't think I'm trying to say go out and do it. Use your squaddie skills to do this because I'm not saying that. For me, it felt so natural because I've been doing surveillance. I've been doing CP work. I'd, I'd, I'd already done a fair bit of work in the civilian environment. So to to use my military qualifications in a civilian environment was already being applied through through CP work and surveillance. So this didn't feel any different. It didn't feel wrong. I know it was wrong but it didn't feel wrong. I mean, if you, you've you got to define what wrong is. I mean, for us it's very natural to carry a, uh, a loaded weapon around a street which looks like the UK, say in Northern Ireland. That for me felt perfectly normal. The streets would look just like the ones outside your front door in the UK. That's normal for me. So this whole definition of normality and what's right and wrong is a very wavy line. Or it was for me, especially when you're kind of half-charged on on drugs on a weekend, perfectly functioning within the week. So what I found was my CP work began to fade away because there were so many people looking for that work I needed to survive. And along with really bad money management skills, which I learned perfectly well from the army about how to spend the weekend millionaires, you spend it all on the weekend, you've got nothing left, but then you know you've got your muckers to to pull you through the month. You can go down the cookhouse and you're going to be okay, aren't you? You're going to survive. I slowly moved into selling ecstasy. And really for me, it felt like a very, that was a natural transition from coming out of the forces. And I just slightly went a little bit left and I just gone completely sideways, Yeah, And it was, it became a new way of life for me because it addressed all of the issues that I was dealing with because it gave me the risk. It gave me an income, barely gave me an income because it was a lifestyle. And it was a lifestyle which replaced my military lifestyle. And I functioned quite happily. You know, I was never, I would never say I was an addict with drugs because I didn't ever, walk down the route of taking substances which were highly addictive you know it's not me i'm not an addictive person um so yeah that's really where it went from there and it was just a lot of ecstasy, ecstasy cells up and down the country and it just grew and it grew and it grew um to the point where really in 2002 i then opted to look into the cocaine market because ecstasy market had really kind of there's not, believe it, there's not much money made on it. You've got to sell a lot of those things to actually survive. You know? And it only takes a couple of things going wrong. And trust me, things go wrong all the time. It's a very untrustworthy uh, uh, industry is, is the drugs game. People are out to rob you in all different ways. They might want to rob you by giving you something which isn't worth the money you've paid for. They might just send someone around your house to kick your door off and take the drugs from you or the money. It's very problematic and you're having to deal with these things on a on a almost on a daily basis and it takes its toll on your mental health. I mean, the only way I can describe somebody asked this a while, ago, guess, because I had some work done with, um, with PTSD, not from combat, but from my nefarious activities. And we'd realised that to be involved in the drugs industry and to do it properly at certain levels, and I'll probably go into that shortly, um, you're under a huge amount of stress. It's like being on operational duties. You imagine being over in Afghanistan, um, being ready. You, you, you're half-cocked, always at the ready, just in case something goes wrong. I've never been there. I'm not. I'm just using that as an example for for, for lads currently and the ladies currently. You imagine being on that tour for 15 years. That's the kind of stress. The, the it never goes away. It never. Even when you go on holiday, it never goes away. It's still there. Because even if you're not actively selling things and you're still in that world, you might have a week off. Well, I'm having a week off this week and they go on holiday with my, my wife and my kids. And you can't switch off because you've got your phone. You, every day you're waiting for a message to come through. It's gone wrong. We've got a problem. So-and-so has been arrested. Your door has just gone off. We owe them money. They, it, the, the problems are endless. And you don't ever get a chance to have any downtime. No rest. That's why I think a lot of people involved in drugs. You see them being very flash. You see them having holidays they've got the nice cars because in the back of their mind they must know that any minute that world's going to come crashing down around them they're going to lose everything it doesn't make it right it just means i think that's why they if they live by the sword they know they're going to probably come unstuck very soon so it takes its toll
0: yeah i always used to say and this is not a, like a not at all a or value call but like if you deal substances you're either going to die or you'll end up in prison it's it, yeah. it was always how it was right in yeah. my um what my Rich? in my uh i'm not including alcohol here which many of you people listening will know that i as a substance use specialist have to tell you the truth alcohol is the worst drug it just is yeah. if you don't understand why go go and research the the effects of it on people go and research how many people die every day from from alcoholism and it's really not nice but taking the alcohol out of the equation because obviously we all started when we was 18 and hitting it hard in the forces <laughs> yeah the, the substance misuse area or the substance use area I've got like too many years you know 25 years experience of it of, of it now both as a professional and a, as as someone that's experienced mental health problems so we're talking addiction. And yeah. someone like you say who's gone out and had a bloody good party and learnt an awful lot about myself, right? But just to pick back up on that point, yeah, I, in all of that time, Rich, I've only ever known one guy. He's made it all the way through and it, um, <laughs> it, doing his, it, and he's made quite a lot of money from it, right? Um, I think the thing that probably saved him is he did a round, so you never like went to his house or i mean if yeah. if you knew the guy obviously you did but he'd do a round every the same two days every week he'd do his round and i don't know the cops must have known his name but but yeah it's uh it, it like you say high stress environment isn't it? am i gonna die today am i go, gonna go get my door smashed in and my life changes yeah.
1: forever you kind of get to six in the morning every morning and you, you're kind of half away thinking is this the day and you get to house that you think all oh, right another day now i can get up and just move on you know and it isn't just your door smashed off by the police it, it could be another firm, and that's why you have to be so secretive about your whole life you know and we talk on our, on our cp courses said, be consistently inconsistent is something i always did that's hard work <laughs> over so much time It's really takes a drain on your your everything it's so much energy used in not being caught. And now that that's finally gone, you've got so much energy left in reserve to, to apply in the right direction. It's quite liberating, you know, it really makes a massive difference. Huge change to your life coming out of it. And you're right about saying, there's only two ways you're either, you're either gonna get dead or get caught. The only way is, the other way is, you might just make it through, you might, but it's very rarely anyone actually gets through that world and makes the money they want to and not have some kind of damage en route whether it's to themselves or their family there's always going to be some kind of damage or some kind of collateral damage which you've got to manage or deal with and you've got to live with that you know i think you have to be ruthless to get through that world totally ruthless and and that that comes in many different forms it could be ruthless as in extremely violent you could end up being just sort of ruthless and you don't really care about anyone around you. So therefore, if you do get caught, you may go down the route of being an informant. And no matter which route you take, you can end up very lonely, very, very lonely, because that's just the nature of it. People just won't want to be around you or you'll either have no friends for any reason. And it's a very lonely existence. And it's not the existence, I think, that a veteran deserves or needs to, not for anyone, but people who serve for the country, you just get re pigeonholed as someone that was you fought for your country. That's great. Clap, clap, hero. everything, everything else. And then you, you, you go to prison for whatever reason and all of a sudden you're pigeonholed as a, as a convict, oh, it's not very becoming of a veteran. And, and it's not, it's not, we should know better, but we don't have much guidance, do we want to come out, we tend to just sort of find their own way and usually goes wrong.
0: Yeah. It, it, we should point out, Rich, it's a murky area though, isn't it? Because as we, I think we said at the beginning of the podcast or, or even before, the drug laws are incredibly, they're inconsistent, they're unfair, they 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 don't work. And they yeah. benefit, you know, certain groups in society that don't care about guys like me and you, right? That's right. Or all the the hundreds of 1000s of people that struggle with addiction on a daily basis. Yeah. So addiction, it's a mental health condition, generally born out of childhood trauma. So you've been a beaten up little kid, you yeah. then struggles to make sense of it as an adult when this trauma repeats. Yeah, substances initially get rid of that trauma and you're, you're like, I'm a so I'm, I'm like everyone else now. Right. And that's where that cycle kicks in. Yeah. Rather than recognise this trauma, what do they do? They make your mental health problems illegal, which is just it, that's as yeah. stupid as making the flu illegal, right? <laughs> Yeah. Let's not even go. Let's not even <laughs> go. Go there now, right? But I, I mentioned this, mate, because you're very humble, yeah. and I get it. Veterans very often are like you're like I did wrong. It's like I I, I don't think you did wrong. I, I I I'm not suggesting anyone follows your, you know, your lead or my lead. Mm-hmm. As I always say, Rich, you live your life, right? I'll live mine. That then we're happy, then, aren't we? You know.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah. I just mention it because that out of the dance era that you said, I mean, God, so many of us learned an awful lot about ourselves. Yeah. About life about, okay. It was a false community when your head's sort of in the clouds, but, but it also showed you actually that what community was that, you know,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: 3,000 people can come together in a field on Dartmoor. (laughs) And the worst thing that happens all night, is a you have a bloody good time yeah and you hug the girl or the guy next to you right
1: yeah and and that's what it was it was it was it was just wasn't ready for that kind of um atmosphere and everything associated with that whole lifestyle just seemed so appealing at the time and and when you've been and the way that i kind of sort of says when i used to go and leave and I've, i think a lot of veterans will probably relate to this whenever you go and leave you see your friends and family they're all very happy to see you back again but you never really you don't really ever fit back into that circle again because they they were your circle of friends and when you leave and join the forces you become different you change you you, you adapt to a new lifestyle with with with, with the people you're serving with so when you come out you've always kind of wrongly or rightly so you kind of almost elevate yourself above or beyond that group because of maybe some of the experiences that you've had you've got the, the, the deal you weren't there man kind of attitude and it's very hard to reintegrate back into that group of friends again so when you come out you still feel like this outsider was never in and and that lifestyle gave me a way to to build this um circle around me like a, I, guess, I suppose like a comfort blanket I created my own circle. I created my own environment with once I started becoming the, the person that was providing the drugs, I then and, and the drugs then became irrelevant is the fact that people came came to me, they came into my circle. And I felt comfortable with that because I had control over that circle. And it's not about being in control, it's about being a part of something which 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 I felt like I belonged. And that was the strange thing about it. I was no longer this person, this this person satellite around this group of friends. I created my own bubble and it was a big bubble and it was great. And I and I felt at weirdly at the time, it, it was like an achievement. And it was it wasn't a great achievement, but for me personally, at, at the time, it kind of got me through that transition. And albeit completely in the wrong direction, I kind of survived it. I went, you no, know, I went off on a tangent really badly. And when I went into cocaine, that was when the world completely changed for me. But in the ecstasy days, it was just it was just nice because there wasn't any real major stress at the time. The stress comes with cocaine. That's when it completely changes. The state I, become different.
0: I should just clarify again for people listening, cause we're not here to upset anyone. No. Yes. When you're hugging in the field and you're having a good old dance off, there will be people. And I was one of them that will take the party home. And then they'll have, then they'll kick the party off the next day. And we're talking a party for one now, right? It's called addiction, right? Yeah. You don't want that feeling of happiness to stop because yes. you know, you've never actually felt comfortable in your whole life. And yeah. I- I'm making this in simplistic terms. So as many people can understand as possible. Yeah. Yeah. The other side of the coin is what is legal is drinking 10 pints of poison Going down down a main street in your city and beating the, the the shit out of a complete stranger, leaving them you know in intensive care, right? Kicking someone's head in because they try and get in a taxi before you, yeah. throwing up your, your kebab over some complete stranger, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Going
0: home, right? Creating domestic violence, right? I'm I'm, I'm painting, and that is another culture. Yeah, that, that you, you know, we, what, what I'm trying to say is, let, let's all stop judging each other. Yeah. That is still a drug, still a poison, yeah. still has massive issues. And yet that scenario is completely yeah. legal. The hugging each other in a field and having a dance. And then you know, spending the next day like watching shit on TV and eating pizza, because you feel <laughs> so bad. It, it, it,
1: it um Yes. It's Sorry, really valid. Chris, you know, because the, that's a really interesting point, because when we, when I was in this little circle of friends and we were all taking ecstasy at the time, and we were on this different level, just dancing, just having a good time, there was never any problems. Uh, with it, the only time we would encounter a problem, and again, this isn't me trying to justify anything, is if there'd be a group of lads would turn up and they were clearly drunk, I mean completely drunk, we would then think, oh God, this is going to be a nightmare. Because you're thinking, as dr- drunken lads turn up, our mix was a mix of, of of guys and girls, you know, and we think this is just going to be a nightmare because we don't want the trouble. We just want to enjoy ourselves. And then people who were, you know, who've had few too many, would come out. They start getting going all, all over the girls, and they'd be pushing us around. We think we just don't want the issue. And I suppose that was the difference between us at the time was involved in that. It was very peaceful and non-violent. Uh, it looks like the back in the sixties, I guess it was very, very loving and nice. But people were drunk. It was a very different feeling. It doesn't mean they were going to cause a problem. It just seemed like they were because of our perception of we're all loved up, and they clearly weren't, you know. But you're right. It's, it was they both have bring so many different problems, you know, in in their own way. But yeah, it was um, tough. There was a very defining
0: moment on the dance scene, and I'm talking the city where I lived, and things changed when they shut the big warehouses down. And then it the scene tried to move into other clubs. But then those clubs were trying to cater to drinkers and the pill takers, right? They were trying to get so come the late night clubs that would stay open till say seven in the morning. Yeah, you'd get this bizarre scenario where at five o'clock, you got one hour the people they're all up, you know, (laughs) giving it large on the dance floor loved up. Not going to arm a fly. And then you had these drunken swaggerers stood there like this, like yeah. with either confusion on their face. Yeah. Like why are these people so happy? What? Why am I? You know. Yeah. Or anger. They were. Yeah. They. They were not happy that you know there's a guy there dancing with five girls. Yeah. Why? Just, smiling yeah. his head off? And here
1: I am on my own, like absolutely fucking wreck yeah and that's a really good point because i think um when you're in that state of mind i.e. on 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 those particular drugs you're having a great time you're not really interested in in getting laid if i may say that you're not interested you just want to have a good time when you're drunk a drunken lad generally speaking you're correct from for one of two reasons to get one or three one drink just drink have a scrap or to find the young lady for the night and if you're drunk and you're seeing these really attractive girls dance, having a great time and you're thinking, "Why well, are you interested in me? Then you're right, the resentment kicks in, the anger kicks in, then you've got to deal with all kinds of problems. And and when you're wired to the moon on ecstasy, the last thing you want to be doing is get involved in a fight because you just don't want it. You know, it doesn't mean you're not because your senses are so alert, you're so wired and you're so aware of everything around you that you, you've no idea what you may or may not be capable of at that time. You think I just rather avoid it, <laughs> you know. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's it's a funny time, funny transition for for yeah. drug especially. Could talk again about when it started to become the norm to mix
0: alcohol with with the substance, and that just produced a real horrible type of person.
1: Mm, uh, yeah. yeah. Again, I, maybe
0: we should come on to this because coke is the thing as well, isn't it? That can really really affect yeah. people's psyche.
1: Yeah, it was, do you know what, when we were, it was round about, let's say about, about 2000, 1999, 2000. And I was kind of thinking that the ecstasy was really getting very difficult to, to live on, not as a substance, but to financially to 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 survive. And people around who'd been clubbing for these four or five years it, it slowly started to go home from the club on the night. Instead of taking more pills, they, they might get a bit. Coke on board or have a sm- bit of smoke, just to try and find a way to sort of numb the night out, and just, just trying, are all getting a bit older now, trying to sort of draw the night out and just finish it. And I think that's when it started to change, when everyone went from being this circle of friends that enjoyed dancing, to go into a pub before you go in the club and oh, all of a sudden, let's have a little sneaky little line. And all of a sudden, you become very subdued. And then that's what people can be seen as being quite arrogant, if they're on cocaine because you become subdued and you don't really converse in the same way so then you're drinking heavily and you can drink a ridiculous amount of alcohol and not actually be drunk you find the balance between the two and that's when it really changed for me because that circle of friends that i used to go out and enjoy clubbing with were no longer clubbing they were buying cocaine and i thought well I better start selling this then really because i'm not really selling that many pills anymore and i've i've clearly not got a job which is any good so i need to start thinking about uh, an income and by then this this has already become my life by then this we're talking four years down the road and it was it's never too late to come out of it but for me at that time i was already in it i was already in it, and it's a conscious decision at the time to keep going as i was until at least i knew what was going on so i started to sell cocaine on small amounts and I think it really changed in 2002 when I started to go into a little bit, a little bit bigger. Um, and this is from the dealing and supply side of it. I wouldn't really take that much. I dabbled now and again because my wife at the time we'd had our first son in 1999, so I was married in 2002. So. And they didn't know anything about it. Clearly, my son didn't. He was a baby. My wife, my family, my dad—nobody knew anything about my illegal activities. I was very, very secretive. I—I I hid everything really well, um, and I blame my military training for that. You know, I'm not blaming them, but that's that's one of the the ways that I use that is to be able to sort of manage to sort of keep it under wraps. And the to stakes when you're selling cocaine—they change dramatically. The the financial. Gains and losses, but not just that, the people involved in that industry. It becomes a very greedy and manipulative industry, and I think that's when the problems really began because it, it just becomes. But you get used to it. You just adjust your life to allow for these different characters. You adjust your 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 stress levels to deal with these kind of numbers. And in if if in it, back in the time we're talking what twenty years ago when I was selling ecstasy. Um, financially if you were to buy ten let let's say ten thousand pills it might cost me about four thousand pounds this is all done on credit it's all done on ticks so imagine if it goes wrong you've still got to pay for it so when you're buying cocaine at the time you might buy a quarter of a kilo and it might cost you um eight or nine thousand so the 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 financially the the substances that you're handling say volume volume wise were so much less but the cost so much more and the greed and the manipulation was just was frightening and then you're looking at trying to sort of find your way through the market and that's when you start coming into not so much like territorial wars but you certainly got people who say right now you have to buy it from me or we have to do it this way and then and people are trying to have you over by selling you stuff which isn't really what it's meant to be and, and it becomes really really Quite scary at times. There have been some times when I thought, this this is going to go really south. This is going to go wrong. But yeah, it wasn't, it was horrible. It was horrible. I don't think I ever really truly enjoyed myself when I was f- for the, what, from 02, for about 10 years selling cocaine. I don't think I ever really sat back and thought, I'm having a great time. No, I don't think I ever managed that. You mask that with the money that you could potentially earn doing the things that you've maybe never been able to afford to do had you not sold these things but it's all tainted because in the back of your mind you're thinking well this is all going to go soon it's all going to be taken away from me I'm going to be in prison I'm going to lose my life my wife's or my kids are going to get kidnapped that's always in the back of my mind and if people are going into that world and they're not having that in there then they're wrong these things happen and if you're not ready for it which I always was then it's going to hit you that much harder But it's like, you're stressed about something which might not actually happen, but I'd rather sit there and be mentally prepared for it than not really bad, really, really horrible.
0: There's something else we should point out for our, you know, for our young people that potentially see this as a glamorous area or somewhere where they can get a shortcut to, to make a bit of cash is yes, you will, you will, this business is renowned for making a lot of money quite quickly. Right. Mm. But what happens is, it's not really there's no key transferable skills in this profession. It's very, it's a one single thing that you do.
1: Yeah,
0: let's forget all the looking over your shoulder every day, which is just no way to live anyway, right. But what happens is you will get busted, you will you will get cocky, you'll get blase, one silly little thing insignificant, like maybe you nick a Mars bar in a shop without thinking, get caught. And then when they search you, you've got something in your pocket. So they go to your house, right, yeah. this kind of stuff, not to mention, obviously, you're going to get grassed up because there's, yeah, you know, so many informants out there. Yeah. So then you're so you've wasted three years in a dead end career doing this thing, mm. you then get banged up for three years. Yeah, that's six years, you've right? What happens in that six years? All your mates have leapfrog you. Mm -hmm. They've now got houses, mortgages they pay, they're working hard, they've gone into higher education, you know, maybe that doesn't work so they try something else. And I've seen this in, in people I know and people I love where they come out the neck, what are they? They're basically no different to when they left school. They've got nothing, right? yeah so what do they do to try to get that kudos back because when we're young we operate out of our ego they go i'm going to do another deal and everyone goes when you were banged up you said you was never going to do that again yeah you were crying in your letters we all went to visit you and support you blah 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 yeah. and look what you've done for all our support you come straight and this is not a lecture guys i'm just trying to it's, sell a story you, here right you come back out you realize you're not mr big shot anymore and your ego wants that kudos back so you're going to go and do this thing and what happens three years later bang arrested again so you don't just get three years now now you get the five yeah and
1: then what happens you come out and and you're you're off then aren't you you're you're a repeat offender um and
0: and rich i don't know if you will agree with me but i say to anyone knock that stuff on it. It's not worth it. Yeah. Go and learn something, start yeah. your own business, start yeah. a YouTube chat, try yeah. and write a book, yeah. go and study a course at night school. This yeah. ultimately you'll become happier and more yeah. wealthier. If that's your thing, you yeah, know, more secure, yeah. let's say, than if you do the shortcut career. Yeah.
1: There's so many guys when I was in prison, um, I used to be a mentor for I used to sort support veterans anyway, and that's something else. But um, I used to be a mentor and support guys coming in, and I'd help them with the journey through the prison. So these 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 people might have been on their first sentence, or them it could be in multiple times. And when they come in, actually make make a conscious decision to this is it I'm going to change. I've been in too many times you can see the difference in their in their mindset they are totally liberated and, and they're so enthusiastic to learn because you've got education in prison you've got you can learn some basic trades or you you can if you if you've got some you can apply yourself and and you know, develop your own plans but when you see the people and they're set about using the amount of energy you use to not get caught when they finally realize that they haven't got to waste that energy on on hiding and, and being evasive anymore and they apply that to something which is gonna benefit their future, you see the difference what they can achieve in such a short space of time. And they actually, but what they require, and this this comes for anyone, is prison's very good at encouraging you to change and to make you um, better yourself, reform, if the, is obviously the word that we use. That's great until you walk out of the prison doors. Now, probation are equally good, but they're there to safeguard the public and to ensure that you're, adhere to certain conditions, which I understand that it's about safeguarding the public against anyone who's got who's, who's a risk or a danger. They haven't always necessarily got the fun, the funding or the finance or the time and staff to help you continue on your journey of reform. I'm lucky I've I've did everything myself inside because I had such a long sentence, so I had time to get this done. But some of the guys on the shorter sentence, when they come out, they've, they've been patted on the back by the people who've been looking after them for the last like, one, two, three years or months, whatever. They're encouraged, yeah, this is a great idea, but as soon as you come out of prison, you're kind of down to, it's down to themselves and they don't get that continued encouragement. So it's very quick for them to be really enthusiastic, but then they got to add this to the fact they're coming out of prison. Are they going to a house? So they go, what's what's a personal circumstance? Have they got anywhere to go? Have they, have they still got support from their family. There's so many other things they've got to take into consideration as well as this master plan they've got about putting life back on track. That's where it normally comes unstuck, and it's very much the same as coming out of the forces. You you're coming out of such a big secure environment with these great plans, and we are a lot of the time, unfortunately, quite delusional with, with what we think we, we hope to achieve with what with our qualifications. I know the CCP are doing some great things now, but there's so many holes there's so many gaps for young veterans who are coming out of the forces and they they've got these plans, and it only takes a couple of knocks, a couple of falls, and you kind of your confidence goes, then you get on the drink or the drugs, and then it goes even further. So you're on that slippery slope fairly quickly, but this can happen at any time. You know, we, we carry a lot of demons inside of us from what we've been around, what we've seen, and mental health can creep up on you. It can creep up on you, and, and you know, before you know it, you're really in a really bad place. So yeah, it's hard. It's really hard coming out of with, with these qualifications and, and trying to make that change. It has to be a conscious decision in your own mind I am going to definitely do. This This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let anything get in my way. I'm going to succeed. And that can drive you a long way. And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Rich, seeing as though you're our man, the man that knows a lot about this stuff, let's just talk about Coke itself. Um, or what, what they, but there's two kinds, isn't there? There's the real stuff. And then what they sell on the streets of.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And everything in between. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone was doing it. Everybody around me was no longer doing ecstasy. They were doing cocaine. And it just, everything changed dramatically. And because I was the one supplying it, I wasn't ever involved in selling on the streets. I never got involved in selling grams. I just kind of jumped from selling ecstasy to going straight into, say, quarter kilos of cocaine. So I never really got involved in, I was never on the front line as such. But because I was, people that knew me, they looked at me differently now. They didn't see me as their friend, Rich. They see me as someone. He's he's really sort of stepped up a little bit now. So they they kind of looked and treated me differently. And I didn't want that. I want to be treated like Rich. The person that I got to know them is, some of them is really good friends. But they never saw me that way anymore. And then the more I got involved in it, and the more I kind of distanced myself from people around me that I cared about, because that's when I had to, because my life was really starting to change. And I kind of wanted a way out of it now. And I was always looking for a way out once I got involved in Coke, there were too many problems, too many issues. And the money was never as good as it, as it should have been because you're always paying for someone else's mistake. Someone's been arrested. And the problem with Coke is if you sell, we call it a nine bar, which is nine ounces, which is you've got the whole imperial and then you've got the metric and it's it's not confusing, but it is, <laughs> but it can be. Uh, I would sell someone, else, let's, let's say an ounce of cocaine for a thousand pounds for argument's sake. Now I've taken this stuff on credit, so I owe someone £9,000 or I owe someone £8,000, my profit would have been let's say £1,000 again, it may or may not be. One person has a mistake or a problem that you've sold to, or they haven't got the money, or they've decided to stick a lot up their nose for the weekend, all of a sudden you haven't got your profit. So you then got hope that the other eight people pay you without fault. Bear in mind you've got to also still got to pay wages for your runners, xyz it could be 500 pound in wages so already you're running at a deficit you've already lost 500 pounds one other person gets a problem you're you're short you're late you haven't got the money for the guy that you owe the money to and these are the people that don't really like to be given they want their money <laughs> regardless so it doesn't take much to turn a potentially lucrative deal into an absolute nightmare and let's say all across the board all nine people they all have a little problem they all come up 250 quid short, you're already down again. So then what you've got to do then is you've got to start, right, I need to start cutting this stuff to allow for their mistakes, to allow to ensure that I at least can pay my bill. And that's before you've made any money. So imagine the stress on top of your neck because already you're, you're changing the dynamic of the, of the business. You're now getting involved in messing with the substance which has already been messed with. So you run risks of adding something to this and it's all usually quite benign substances and I won't say what they are, but you add something to it, which you know should be okay, but you don't know what's been put in it before. So if you put something in there and it reacts with what's already in there, you've just destroyed nine grand worth of substances, which you still have to pay for and is unsellable because it might turn into, it might, it's chemicals. There are chemicals in there and they will react in some way. And I've had things which I've tried to push a little bit further, should I say, and it's gone, it's turned into a slimy mess. Like, what am I going to do with this? What, and, and all of a sudden you're, you're nine grand in debt. So then you've got to figure out how am I going to get out of that debt? Then you've got to start buying stuff in and, and cutting it again with something which isn't going to react. And, and it becomes an absolute nightmare. So you, that's just even before you've made any money. So that if that's not enough to put someone off, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's is really, really precarious path about you can make money if you're in the right place at the right time and you are ruthless and you don't want any friends, you're still going to get caught and you're still going to be lonely and you're still going to be stressed out and you're still probably going to die at some point. But the rest of it is just, it's really hard work and it is stressful. Yes. Especially when you see it all completely fall apart on you.
0: Yeah, I want to chip in here, Rich, with something else. Um, so there was that thing, wasn't there, on the dance scene, Yeah, when I first started going out, you bought one love dove or a Calais as they were, you know, (laughs) Calais was a very, for people listening, a very strong ecstasy pill, it just send you a bit doolally, you know, Um, but you pay 15 quid, right? 15 quid. And I Mm -hmm. had mates that would pop five on a night out. I don't even know where they got the money for. Well, some of them had their own (laughs) businesses, right? And then we saw this situation and I'm guessing it was related to the fact that ecstasy is synthesized or, or it's produced from the saf tree is it in Cambodia, right? Okay. They dig up this tree, they chainsaw the root off it and that contains the main chemical that's synthesized into ecstasy or whatever the, the whatever that word is, right? Good
1: for the MDMA,
0: isn't it? Yeah, So it's not it's it's not hard to see that this tree is going to be harvested out of existence. Right. <laughs> the reason I mention it is because overnight, almost overnight, pills went from being 15 quid to a quid. Right. Yeah.
1: 1997. Yeah. A quid.
0: Yeah. Right. Now, they still had an effect on you. Right. what wasn't quite the same as the old the old school stuff, which sent you to this just God, it just put you on a I'm not going to say it was a crowd. It's not It there isn't words to describe it. Right. And um, this isn't a recommendation. People go and do it. But now the same thing, right, happened with bass. Do you remember bass, right? Yeah, speed and bass, wasn't yeah. it? When I got back from Hong Kong, because I couldn't buy crystal meth in the UK, you could get it if you were I think if you're on the gay scene, there were places, you know, there were ways to get it. Yeah. Um, but the next best thing to crystal meth was base amphetamine. So methamphetamine, but just not purified to its crystal form. Right. Yeah. And then the day came along and it took quite a while, but it was about say, let's say 2005 ish. Yeah. Where suddenly this stuff that you bought from your guy, it's, this ain't the same. Yeah. It doesn't even smell. It doesn't have that. Anyone knows the smell will know what it it, is. Yeah. And again, it was some chemical synthesis. Yeah, clearly they didn't have the right ingredients. My guess would have been the powers that be brought stricter laws out on what the chemical companies could sell and what they couldn't sell and who to Right. So companies like I don't know, ICI or whatever the the big bulk distributors of barrels of chemicals in this company, probably then had to be a bit more, um, you know, accountable But who, who, you know, are you selling this to some farmer who has got a, you know, a barn in North Devon with a with a copper bathtub in it, which is (laughs) part of the process for making speed for anyone listening. Um, so there there was that, right? Then there was the fact that any time you bought this cocaine stuff, it was just fucking shit. Excuse my French, but it was just you get some scrawny little spotty geezer, yeah, that would sell you this fifty quid, and it was it. And I say, I can say that because obviously I've I've traveled every single country in the Americas. Yeah. Um, it's it's a fascinating subject just to be aware of down there. For example, yeah. when you're in places like Honduras, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, such places, bales of cocaine wash ashore there, right? Yeah. And they come from the smuggling boats from South America, so these high powered speed boats yeah. But when they see a spotter plane, they just chuck it all overboard, right? And it washes up on the beaches in Central America, and the locals go, Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll have that. Yeah. Little bit for themselves, the yeah. rest of it sold. And so, in any region in that part of the world, Colombia, Venezuela, even as far as when you start getting across to Guyana, it very much more becomes crack because it's. Yeah uh, when you're in Guyana, it's very Georgetown, it's very ghettoized. It's yeah, it's where they were all sent down as slaves. And then yeah. at some point in our colonial histories, they got their freedom. Yeah. But they still live in freaking poverty down there, you know, yeah. a rock yeah. of crack. What will cost you 10 or 15 quid in the West? Yeah. You, you buy for, for a dollar down there, you know, it's maybe shouldn't be advertising that
1: but... it was off. Everyone's off over there. <laughs>
0: What I can tell you, you know, from my uh, adventures is like bloody hell, you buy that stuff in Colombia. it is even Hong Kong. Funny enough, it's just a
1: different animal, right? I think you're right, because if you look at the, the, the transit route, which it will take from, say, South America across to the Canaries and into maybe North Africa through Spain and so on and so forth, it starts off over in South America, a couple of grand, maybe four up to four grand for maybe a kilo and then the, the further, the closer it gets to the UK, the less pure it becomes and the more expensive it gets. So by the time it's, I mean, I, my, my prices are way gonna be way off, I haven't been near it since 2010. Um, you know, that's when I was arrested, or, or that's when my investigation started. So the prices we were paying back in the UK then were something around about 60 grand for a kilo of coke. And that probably wasn't completely pure, it's probably about 70%. 10 years previous to that, I think in about 2001, or no oh 02, so less than 10 years, it was half the price and better. So it fluctuates so much depending on the rest, how much gets across the water. It's it's like any other commodity, it, ha, it, it does vary in price, quality, quality and everything else. So you're right, mm-hmm. over in the South America is a totally different animal um, compared to when it gets here. But as soon as the, the, the businessmen get hold of it, I say businessmen, as in the top end people, they'll start mixing it spreading it repackaging it Uh, you know most people have rarely seen the the real stuff rarely there there could be placebos to make it look like it's real but rarely see it
0: yeah the the companies that make these hydraulic presses have must have made a fortune in the last 20 years (laughs) yeah they they
1: re-block it with novocaine and all this stuff don't they and yeah yeah we we used to buy various things from like say about the the chemicals that you can buy large drums of various substances which you can use to to mix it with and they are perfectly safe things because they're used in most other medicines of some sort and then you bear in on the quantities that you're probably going to be taken on board if you're putting it up your nose are less than you would if you were to take it through correct medicinal reasons so it's kind of morally i suppose <laughs> there is such a thing morally well, at least i'm not Cutting it with something dangerous, but you're still selling drugs, aren't you? You're still selling crap onto the streets of the UK, but kind of morally thinking all these rumors have always been cut with rat poison or this. No, why would you do that? Why would you want to kill potentially good customers? Yeah, I mean, of course. You, you, it doesn't happen unless someone's trying to maliciously spike you or cause you a problem. What I want to come on to,
0: Rich, is again, we went through all that hassle of scoring and Waiting for your dealer. Oh my God, who's ever waited for a dealer? <laughs> Jesus Christ! Now you've got all this county line stuff. You know where the mm. the the big crimbo send a young lad out. He he esconces in a in a rural community, possibly blackmailing or threatening a local person, maybe with learning disability or something like. Oh, I'm living in your house, right? Or yes. they feed someone who's got addiction problems and that's the route that they get to stay in someone's house i'm guessing they secrete the gear in the local area so nothing is traceable back to them yeah they then have a a burner phone and they hand out numbers to everyone with the the prices of the gear on the back yeah and they're you know they they either travel back to the inner city themselves and shove something more down their underpants and get on the train they're so young They get under the radar of the police, blah, 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 blah. Right. So, from that perspective, it's become a bit easier to sort this stuff out. Right. And I'm not, again, I'm not like saying that's good or whatever. I'm for the sake of education here. But the thing I wanted to say is you go through all that hassle. What you get is now crap anyway. Yeah. Right. Plus, you risk, you you guys are risking getting arrested. You're getting, risking. Getting arrested, da 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 da, all the hassle, the time, even if you can get the stuff.
1: Mm.
0: Now you got the dark web. Yeah. But
1: right. yeah. well, online, apparently.
0: <laughs> well, let you know, I'm, I'm not going to say too much though, although we, I'm not saying anything, friends, that you can't see in a Vice documentary or even a BBC yeah. documentary. They discuss yeah. all of this, right? All of it. But basically, as long as you are even slightly internet savvy, right? And the only reason you need savviness is that you dealing you talking code, right? And you need to have to encrypt your code, right? It's it's even your grand could learn it like in an hour, right? Mm. Sorry, grand, even <laughs> your granddad could learn it in an hour. Yeah. Um, and lo and behold, for a price cheaper than on the street, you got the pure stuff from Bolivia, right? at half the
1: price sent you through the post it's <laughs> because i saw something on the one i was still inside a couple of years ago i actually saw a documentary about this and it was about a group of lads planning their night out and they said they they had gone onto the web they didn't show the the search engine of what they were doing they just yeah. showed him ordering this substance on there and it was so clear but encoded in, in i thought how does that work for someone not getting caught and he was hoping that his delivery arrives in time before he goes on a Saturday night. And I thought, that's insane. From a business perspective, it's great. It's just, it's just like, you know, that that's just phenomenal. But I think, how does that work? Someone's going to get caught. Surely there must be, there are very clever people in GCHQ who are gonna crack these codes, but they, they did don't, don't on these encrypted phones a few months ago, whereas a massive set of arrests right across Europe. So they'll get caught eventually. We'll crack these codes eventually.
0: The thing is, Rich, right? Is yes, you're right. There's always a way to infiltrate trait these kind of networks, right? You got to remember, or we've got to remember, it's on mass now. Yeah. And are the police really going to be bothered about Sid up the road who's getting a quarter of of wacky backy for his yeah. Friday night, right? Yeah. So all I'm not going to say the websites or any uh, anything like that, but but uh, but the basis way that it works is the money side of it's all encrypted it's all it's not even bitcoin it's it's more encrypted money systems than that yeah so even if the 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 bill are looking at the money system they can't work out where this money's coming it's all encrypted you know it's all encrypted right yeah on top of that you you know it's not just like you can sign up for it like ebay there's other measures in slightly in place let's say yeah on top of that, as I said, you, you encrypt all your information in code, which only you or the person you give your cypher to can, can decode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. On top of that, right. Unless I'm guessing you're probably a bit stupid. You ain't going to put your name on that,
1: <laughs>
0: no. that package, right? No. You're no. going to put John Smith, aren't you? Why, why wouldn't you? Because yeah. then when it That's does, you know, when it does come to your door, yeah. If let's just say a sniffer dog at the post office has gone rough, 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 right? Well, it says John, it's not for you, you know. Yeah. It, you just say, Sorry, officer, I've obviously got the wrong house, haven't they? Right, right. Mm-hmm. This and so, in amongst all that, we've got the you know, the little man in the street who just wants to go for a party on a Friday or a Saturday night, but buying a, such an insignificant amount that the police work that would have to go in to proving that was actually his right yeah
1: yeah
0: and that he paid for it through digital currency you're talking like you need 30 police officers what to bust a guy (laughs) who's ordered a quarter of dope you know or or, 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 right so you've got all that i don't know if obfuscation is the right word but in amongst that you've got people buying big stuff right you're, you, you know, you're talking, how do I know this? I I, I stayed with somebody in, in Central Europe, they showed they explained it all to me and they showed me the, the, the product, right? Yeah, all the stuff that we've said you can't get anymore. Wrong. Right? Yeah. Um, And yeah, so what in amongst that, if you want to buy a kilo of the stuff, your, your price is there? Yeah, you know, your price is there. And the only risk is is that it gets intercepted yeah chances are probably that's maybe i don't know one in a hundred thousand chance yeah so your profits already quite safe aren't they <laughs> you know if one one consignment and a hundred thousand goes missing yeah um so yeah it's, it's it it's kind of like the old way of doing it is a bit like the
1: mugs game now isn't it i think so i think that the, the, the old-fashioned um Boots on the ground, if you like, it's it's becoming digital. but they're using an already an already approved infrastructure like the Royal Mail or anything else to do their or they're running for them. All they're doing is literally taking an order and, and they're like a an outlet, aren't they? Online outlet. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that's all really been developed while I've been away. And I come out and although I had no intention of going back into that world, I'm thinking even if I had the wildest idea of going back into it, I wouldn't stand a chance with the way things have moved on and technology. I thought, it would just be crazy and there's some very clever people looking at things who are, who are very tech savvy and utilizing what they've got around them and like I say to use an already approved system like the, the royal mail delivery system is you know it's clever but there, there, there will come a time when people eventually they they get caught for other reasons so they they have to launder the money they have to find a way to put the money into the bank although it's already going through a a digital network, and it will probably have some system being bounced around a few different companies before it al- arrives with them. A mistake will be made and somebody will get caught. And then, once the, the authorities have found out how they're doing it, they, they've already got the information they need. I mean, the way of, I've, I've done some work with police officers in support of veterans, and we were chatting, and, and we both agreed that as someone selling drugs, I only had to get it wrong once, the police have only got to get it right once. That's how it works, you know. They 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 just gotta stumble across a lead, they get it right, bang, they've got it. and we've got it. So we've got to be from my end that's be on my on my toes all the time. I make one mistake and I'm done. And I'm done. That's all it is, regardless of how you're doing it. Rich, let's talk
0: about then how how did it start getting serious? Can you tell us any kind of you know, what's it like driving a car when you know what's in the boot or shoved in the (laughs) door panel or whatever it is?
1: Yeah, so. I think with, with, um, when you're getting involved in that in that world, you, you, you can choose how you want to operate and you can operate independently as one person or you will go to your supplier, you'll purchase whatever you're buying and you'll distribute that yourself. Or you can start to sort of think, right, well, okay, this is getting a bit much one person, you start to employ runners. So progressively over, I would say from about 1999, I always try to employ runners if it was viable and I could afford to do so. And always have to, and 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 this is gonna sound really bad because no one in my eyes is expendable or or disposable. So employing someone who's gonna effectively do the dirty work for you, you have to have someone that you trust. The trouble is, if someone you trust, you generally like them. So why would you want someone that you like doing your crap for you? And it's a really difficult decision to make because you're thinking, I really like this guy. He's my mate, but he's in the crap, he needs some money. He's just lost his job, for example. Rich, got any work? I have, but it's probably not what you're gonna to wanna to really do. And I said, well, no, I know what you're doing. And I said, well, okay. So you offer them an opportunity to work. I said, not for me, work with me because my I've always worked with, with guys. I wouldn't have them do anything I haven't done myself. And I wouldn't be prepared to do if I needed to do. And I have done on many occasions. So you kind of expand your business from a one-man band to maybe a couple of you, and then it gets a bit bigger. And then you think, "Well, I, can't, I don't want him doing too much, so I might need someone to to collect the bulk things before I start messing with it." And I, oh, by the way, I don't want to be sat there with my press doing all the hard work. I want someone to do that for me now because I don't, I, I'm okay. I don't need to take the risk anymore. So you get someone to do that for you. And next thing you know, you have got a network of about four or five runners. One of them bulk. One of them one person just counted the money, one person did the press and I thought, oh, I know, I'll get someone to manage it for me, so I don't have to actually manage it anymore, so you get someone to manage all this for you. So really, you do expand and, and there was a time and it doesn't come without its problems. There have been some issues which I've written about in, in the first book, which I won't give too much away because it, it is quite a good read, where when you finally recover from something really bad, you're actually making the money you need to make in order to get out of that life. I always had an exit plan and the exit plan was getting close. Um, you can distance yourself so far away from it that you then become, it becomes a conspiracy. And you're going from being arrested for possession, possession with intent, you then looking at being arrested for a conspiracy. And, and that's where I was, I was conspiring to sell. So I was communicating with a group of people to distribute this stuff across Bristol parts of the southwest of england some of it over into wells over over the bridge you know and, and it was quite a large network it was a big network and i think there were seven or eight people working with me at the time you combine that with the several people working for this network i was being supplied from and you add that to the networks of the people that are supplying too you've got quite a lot of people involved probably talking like 30 40 people just within fairly close proximity
0: and That's Rich, can can we just clarify on that subject? I'm just I'm talking now for the people that don't know about this arena of life, right, which I'm yeah. guessing is still probably quite I mean, we talk about it quite sort of openly, because it's, yeah. you know, we understand it. But for people who, who are going, Oh, what bloody thing? druggies, God, yeah. ha- hang them all, hang them all, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But remember, folks, alcohol, worst drug, just is yeah. Um, but how many of this network did you meet were raging psychopaths that like no. would, would sell poison to children
1: and, you know, Not one s- person. In, in my whole experience, I've met some really bad people, don't get me wrong. And you're going to meet bad people in life anyway. They just seem that much more when they're not when they're living at, on, on the, the other side of the law. They just seem to be really bad and they are bad people. But, my my associates and people that I worked with—they're all actually decent people. Some of them even had jobs. They just tended to have a little top up. Um, sensible people, not non-violent people. You get violent people in that industry because you know they're violent. You get violent people working with you down in Tesco's. So you just don't know they're violent. You know. So there are people. And there are elements everywhere of, of people which you you need to avoid. But in the the people I I surround myself with. I tried to have like-minded people as much as I could. People which were some sort of morals. I know what we were doing was wrong and morally it was wrong, but I wouldn't do something where I knew I was going to intentionally hurt someone. But that was being blind about the world I was in at the time. If I look back in reflection now, selling drugs, you're going to get people hurt physically. You didn't have to hurt them physically, but mentally, financially, there's so much damage can be caused. But the people I was with, when we were arrested, and this is this actually came from the police, they said they'd never, and this is going to sound really weird, they never met such a bunch of nice drug dealers, which is really daft, because everything is, <laughs> is there such a thing? Clearly they've got people who are decent decent people, just make some really big mistakes in order to survive, and it takes over your life. So, no, not it wasn't a violent network, um, not once that I ever needed to get involved in anything aggressive or violent. In fact, I choose to my best to actually avoid that if I can. Which makes it difficult living in that world if you're someone. Can again, just Rich, for the sake of people at home, again, who are unfamiliar
0: with this, you know, let's remember the biggest, next to alcohol, the second biggest problem in our country is prescription medication, right? In an opiate epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. These GPs scribbling can't write these prescriptions fast enough. Yeah. Based on these sociopaths that own these big pharmaceutical companies that, that, they have no soul Mm -hmm. they for people that aren't aware when you trade, you can trace the the history of some of these companies they have very clever people they pay an awful lot of money to to um, work out their marketing strategy campaigns how can they lie to the medical community to get this pill into the market right Mm -hmm. so you've got one of these strategies was to say that uh, oxycodone, which is incredibly strong opiate, right? If you're going to be prone to addiction, which anyone who's had childhood trauma is, yeah, that one's going to get you and don't matter if you're taking it for a broken leg or, a, you know, you've had your bloody ears chopped off, whatever you you before long, you're going to be start to balance in the high more than you are the pain, right? Or, or, yeah. or both. Yeah, and these companies pay people, to get the GPs to say that this pill is no different to taking an aspirin yeah, or it's about the same strength as a Coke, you know, Coke and it's, they know what they're doing. They're not, they want the population addicted to these painkillers because they're making a yeah. fortune. Right. So yeah. going back to Rich's point about the nicest group of drug dealers. Well, hang on. What's it like when you go in a pharmacy, are they, are they horrible people? Yeah, they're not kicking the door off, are they? You know, they they look quite respectable, don't they? And um, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not obviously saying here that there isn't a place in life for prescription medication. I certainly need it when my spine was out. That was the worst agony. I yeah. couldn't move, rich for six months. I lay in bed peeing in a bucket. It was yeah. awful. You know, I called nine nine nine, what nine 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 or nine one one three times. I, I was in that much that much pain sometimes right um sorry to di- di- digress but yeah i just wanted to make that point and uh, we're not tr- i'm not trying to like justify anything here folks it's just yeah. the these the, these are the truths in life that we when we when we just believe our precious bbc we don't get to understand
1: these areas yeah and, and i think it's really as well because um i've seen two types of Two types of people how they run their business involved in in drugs distribution and you can either run it as a gangster which is the violent and ruthless way people get hurt people are getting kidnapped and everything else or we run it as a business and you just try to to survive off of it that doesn't mean it's right it just means that's how you would run the business you you don't need to be violent I, I was asked a question on social media the other day about do I see many firearms. Um, Not once I felt the need to carry or use any form of weapon. And I've been on so many meetings with people which clearly are carrying some kind of weapon in that room at the time in case it goes tits up. I've never felt the need to. I thought, well, I'm not conducting myself in a way where I'm gonna pose a threat. I'm not doing anything which is gonna require them to draw a weapon on me. So therefore, why would I need to bring a weapon myself? But some people will carry weapons or be violent out of fear or greed. And it's a very greedy industry is, is cocaine especially. And I think people will get overcome by the greed. With that they get paranoia as well because they may be sniffing the profits. They probably aren't to be fair because of the, the level they've gotten to. They're not gonna get that le- to that level by indulging all the time. So then it's generally greed, greed and a, a sense of, of paranoia and they, they don't wanna lose what they've got. And some people will do anything to protect that. So yeah, you, you, and and that's where the the problems can come. As you if you approach a a new contact with a business mind, and that new contact has been dealing with gangsters, they've got a gangster mentality, and you can tell that straight away when when you meet them, when you see them, they think oh, you're not really my cup of tea, mate. You know, you something not quite right about you, and you pick up on that, and you you decide to sort of walk away from what could be a potentially good contact but you know that that contact will bring unnecessary headaches with that and that's their mentality and how they approach things you know you get the people that shout down the phone at them they're aggressive they're screaming that doesn't change anything you know? but the people i was with we all spoke we communicated we talked we all ran our own businesses we just unfortunately we we're, we're kind of doing that as well in order to survive and a lot of the time and this is actually not justifying things at all was in 2008 we had a major recession 07 08, we hit the major recession so financially a lot of things were going really bad um, some people turned to selling drugs during that time in order to keep their businesses alive keep things afloat and again that's not justifying it but you have businessmen people which were had worked hard all their life chose to take this route in order just to just to keep the thing keep things alive during a recession and that's some of the people i was involved with it was a very um a very difficult time. I'm not saying that's myself. I was guilty of what I did from day one, but I met people who were doing this because they had no choice. Well, there's always a choice, but at the time they didn't see a choice.
0: And, you know, to add a bit of balance, the other side of the fence, you get some raging psychopaths in this world, don't you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've,
1: I've had to, yeah, I've been in some really bad positions with people which are absolutely insane, totally insane. And I've, there's so many times I should have been dead and I'm not because I can talk <laughs> and if I can't talk, I can run. It doesn't mean I am not. I can't look after myself, but I would rather not have to worry about that. I'd rather one, not be there, two, if I can talk my way out of it, I will talk my way out of it. Because you know, generally speaking, if it goes wrong on a drug deal, you're gonna end up with dead bodies. You, know, you usually end up with dead bodies and, and that's not something I wanna be around. I don't wanna be involved in that. I don't wanna see that, And but that is the reality especially now with they say with county lines and young young the younger gangs these guys are ruthless i've seen guys coming into prison who are you know younger at the younger end of the scale like in their early 20s arriving in an adult prison and they've got this ruthless mentality and they carry that about them on the wings so yeah it's not it's it's not fun when you're mixing a decent moral bunch of drug dealers with, with, with ones which aren't quite you know, they'll, they'll rob you for anything they can
0: yeah we should also acknowledge like Back there in Colombia, you got nutcases like Pablo Escobar, have not you? Just, yeah. just utter psychopath, yeah, complete egomaniac. Whatever cloud he was on, just anyone he wanted to blow up and intimidate. You know, massive loss of life. Again, yeah. I think the educated observer would say drug laws. Let's look at the drug, you know, because market demand, capitalist yeah. society, people are going to sell stuff if they can make money. And if yeah. the chances of getting caught are, you know, and even if the chances of getting caught are sometimes pretty shit, you know, like you are going to, yeah. You always look to the positive as humans, don't we? Think that won't happen to
1: us. You know? Yeah, you are be optimistic, don't you? And um, you may calculate risks, don't you? you? You calculate your risks, you look at what you're going to do. Um, there's always going to be a variable in there which you can't quite be sure of, and that's usually the other person. But you calculate all of your risks throughout the particular process you're going to take whether it be from taking what you're going to deliver from, from point a to point b you look at the person taking it for you look at the vehicle they're driving. look at their their comms are they do they smoke pot are they going to have a sneaky joint on the way down there and elevate their risks are they a drinker are they going to stop and dive into the bag on the route you have to calculate all of these things before they've even left and decide whether to actually employ that person what happens on the other end of that deal is you have to think right where's the meeting place going to be who are they going to see what's a person like they're going to see is a the person like they're like going to actually be there on time we're we going to be waiting for half an hour lay by there's so many things you have to weigh in and consider on every little drop and if you're doing three or four of these at once as a person conspiring you're planning all of this and calculating all of these risks because any one of these people get it wrong That comes back up the chain, lands on your head and you get knocked down for conspiracy to supply cocaine, which is what happened.
0: (laughs) Rich, let's just talk about a few things. I'm just made a couple of notes here. So in the car then, yeah, it it, 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 was there. Is there like a favoured place that dealers put their stash? Is there somewhere that?
1: Yeah. Well, do you know what? I was actually quite, I used to love Christmas because we, I would always wrap everything in Christmas presents. And gift wrap it and put it in a a, a, a plausible bag and have it on the back seat. If it's in there and it's out of sight, out of mind, that's good enough for me. You're not talking a couple of grams, you're talking a couple of kilos. You're not going to hide it under anywhere. If your guys are getting pulled, they're going to, and they're pulling you for a reason, they're going to find it. They already know it's in the car. Why make it? Why draw it out? (laughs) It's going to get found anyway. If you're going to go to the effort of, Secreting it about the car within the boot linings and everything else. At some point on the other end of that journey, you have to then get it back out again and and sell it. So, and if someone's doing multiple drops, if they're the guys I had doing the running, they might. I would never give them more than two or three drops each because one, you don't want them having on the phone too much. Secondly, they are having too much on them, and thirdly, you're elevating the risk of them getting caught by doing more than those drops anyway. So why not spread it out a little bit? So no, generally speaking, I just say as long as you're happy with it and it's wrapped up. And if it wasn't Christmas, I'd put it in birthday wrapping paper anyway. It'd always be gift wrapped. Um, and vacuum sealed as well, in case that had to be ditched into a river or under a bush, or they weren't happy, it'd be it would be weatherproof. It might be in bright wrapping paper, but it'd be red and it'd be weatherproofed. So I always kind of had that, that mentality of always preparing for the unexpected, preparing to get caught. And so the guys would just be quite happy to say they'd have a carry bag on the back seat or on the front seat full of these little gift wrappings. And it'd have like a it wouldn't have a name on the front, it might have a little star or one or a two. Okay. It, it might they, they would know what's for what person. And if they get pulled, they get pulled. And let's hope they can talk the way out of it. But they shouldn't give themselves any reason to be pulled. Shouldn't be speeding, shouldn't be shouldn't be drinking, shouldn't be doing anything illegal. But you get some. I had one guy, <laughs> a very close friend. Um, suffer with the temper and he was known for road. <laughs> he was known for jumping out of the car and having a go at people every now and again and did that with me in the car and I had 30 grand in the footwell by my feet <laughs> just leapt out of the car and started screaming at some guy and i'm thinking would you please get back in the car mate? i've got a lot of money on me get back in the car let's move on and he sort of came back and just grunted a little bit <laughs> we drove on so that's when i was there God knows what it was like when i wasn't Good friend, though, so I do apologise, mate, if you're listening. he knows who he is? <laughs> yeah, Rich, how does it work then? Because
0: obviously you're passing on down the line, yeah, a product at a certain quality, yeah. But when you go and buy it, and sometimes needs must. If you need that kilo, you need, you know. But well, two questions I should ask you. First off, how did you test it? Is it like in the Miami Vice, you know, <laughs> where they do all that 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 stuff?
1: It can be. Um, yeah, so, so it's, it's, you have to try and weigh up your capacity in that particular. Now, I was very good at going into, I call it the lion's den, going into a first contact meeting with people and, and trying something, not try it, but the ways I would test, it, and am I allowed to say this? I mean, I don't want to give people any clues, but one of the ways I would do would be to take a peep between my fingers and rub it, and it would give a certain indication to me. If certain things happened or didn't happen, I would know that it was good or bad. That would be a good enough indication for me to say, "Yes, this is what you're saying. It is. I'm happy to take this based on on what I've seen so far." However, if it's not when we when we test it properly, it's coming straight back to you. This will be done on credit, so they just wouldn't get paid. They get the stuff back. And okay. it comes back in the same way that they've, they've left it. Then that's not a problem. Um, other times, if I'm bringing if I'm bringing something to someone and they would want to test it and i, and I would respect the fact that the, if they're spending cash on it and they're paying up front they want to actually physically test it so they may well stick a pickup bit of the nose which isn't ideal because then you've got to sit and wait for them to get off their tits and you just sat there i just want to get paid mate so i can get out of this house i don't really like it in here. or they may do a process where they convert it into crack to test the purity not because they want crack but because that's their indication of how much they they can produce from a given measure, and I'm being very careful how I say this. How much they can produce from a given measure will will tell them the, the more or less the priority and percentage. That's a process which is not ideal, but it, it does give them a, a pretty good uh, answer of how good it is. So that's really something which some people will do if they're paying cash, and it's not it's not nice. You you see a very dirty process, and you see something which is the other end of the spectrum of where I where I choose to be, and but do you know what the good and the this is the thing, what they would do with what they produce that crack, they throw it away. They chuck it straight down the sink. And that made me think, right, well, at least they're not doing it for that. That's a way of testing. And I admit I have actually testings myself. I've done this and same thing. I just take that that rot and I just chuck it away. I'm not interested. I don't, I don't know what it stands for. I don't like what it does, and I don't like actually having it because it's that is pushing something a little bit too far. And that might sound weird coming from someone that sells sold cocaine, but Crack is, is a whole different kettle of fish. That's something I, I would choose not to have any involvement with. And I didn't like having it around me. Even if it was less than a gram, it would still get thrown in a sink or washed down the toilet because it, it represented something I didn't like.
0: So, before your, obviously, before your arrest, yeah. arrests, plural, because um, yeah. we haven't got that far yet, what, what were like the big scares, you know? Did you ever get pulled on the motorway or something and think, oh, Jesus Christ, this is it? <laughs>
1: I had um, there was numerous occasions and I think the closest I ever had. And this was really I was doing some work with the Colombians over in Spain and I was paying a debt off. I won't go into it in too much depth because it's going to be something in one of the books. But basically, I was transiting a couple of kilos of coke from Spain up through France. And I had a meeting point near the border, sorry, near, near the coast, near Calais, to offload this coat to somebody who was going to take it over the water for me. And this is a particular time I had to be there for. Now, I've run into a slight problem in, in Spain, I. talking about trying to stash the stuff. I'll stick it in line under the boot and it was dark, it was five in the morning, it was dark, it was cold. So I just sort of like did the best to ram these couple of kilos into the boot line of this car and I thought, that will do, it. it's in there, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. This has set me back about half hour, 40 minutes from my meeting point. So I had to think, right. Well, I've got to get a move on here. So I had to go through various checkpoints through the, um, through the border control between Spain over by Bilbao, over on the west side, up through France towards Paris. And I had no choice, but I had to put my foot down. Um, now, prior to this, the guy, that the, the firm that I was working with, I had no money, I was skint. I was paying the debt off. He said, there's some money for expenses They give me a 500 euro note. You don't see them around very often and they're just they're, they're questionable to have in possession anyway. So that's all I had on me. So I was tanking it up through France and I come over the rise of this hill and I saw a police car doing it. It was radar. I thought, crap, I've just been pulled. So I sort of slowed down eased off. He pulled out behind me. I thought, great, I'm in trouble here. He pulls me over and he looks in there and he says, I'm trying to speak my best French. He says, oh, you were going too fast, blah, blah, blah. He said, you are 90 euros to pay for the speeding front I thought, oh, that's fine. I thought oh, of all I got this is this 500 euro note. So I pulled it out and he looked at me and he went, no, you come with us. So they escorted me off of the motorway to these, got these gates on the side of the, the, the French motorway where you, you would access the, sort of come off of the motorway and onto the, the, the normal roads. They escorted me off for this and it took me and they were taking me into the police station i thought i'm in trouble there, and i thought i've got two keys in the back they've seen this 500 euro in there and clearly this is um a flag a red flag for them so that indicated a space for me to pull into so thought it's just some kind of search and stop space and he walked over to me and he said do you have a cash card i said yeah but it's not working there's no money He looked at me again he says you follow us and they escorted me back out of the police station back onto the motorway to the nearest garage, made me buy some fuel. And I went into the garage, poured out the 500. She goes, not taking it. I said, please just take the money. I think I've gotten away with this. And I said, explained to her that I've been pulled by the police. Um, I didn't tell her I have drugs in the boot. I told her I've been pulled by the police. So I need to pay a fine. So she eventually got a manager out, took the money, had the change, paid the police. Au revoir monsieur, and they went on their way. So, yeah, I was sat in a French police station with two, kilo, two kilos of coke in the boot. Um, but I remained calm all the time. I thought, there's no point crying about this. I can't do anything about it. I'm not going to run. So I can't like run. Them. Where am I going to go? I just ride around and see what happens. But that was probably one of the one of the closest I've had. I have had the police in my house searching prior to my arrest in 2009, where there was nothing in there. It was, it was associated with somebody I used to supply to. And I think there was something going on, but they came, they didn't arrest me, they didn't charge me, they just wanted to search the house, associate with another person. Which I think that was back in 2009 and this kind of didn't go anywhere because by at this point I think the investigation into me had already started from soccer from Avon and Somerset. So I think when they, they could have probably investigated further, but I think they probably said look back off from this one guys, we've got something a bit bigger going on with this. So that didn't really come to anything. And then it led up to my um, my whole organization getting taken down the back in the 2010, which was something else, yeah.
0: So was that a surveillance opera, you know, a big intelligence operation that was being yeah. done with you guys?
1: There were, we believe, well, I know there are informants involved, um, more than one, I think. There, there's. It's difficult to say, and it, there's a lot of paranoia involved, but I think you've got to read between the lines sometimes. There was a surveillance operation going on. They were watching, I think not so much watching me, but they were certainly keeping tabs on me for a while prior to the first arrest, which is the end of uh, the end of October 2010. You get signs and indication. Being quite surveillance savvy, sometimes when you're speaking on your phone, on your burner, as as you mentioned, when you ring someone who's involved in that conspiracy, because bear in mind, this phone will only have the numbers in it for people that you are dealing with. If you like, you sometimes get a bit of feedback or an echo or I think it doesn't sound right so i'll, say, oh, I'll call you back in a set. it doesn't matter calling back is you telling the person that's listening to you that you know they're listening to you or you've got an idea so the weird thing is you call back and that echo's gone and that feedback is gone i think that oh, sounds better but i don't like this you change your phones um so you do get kind of signs that you that you may be being watched periodically over a period of time but when the first arrest was taken down that was the I think october the 28th or 27th 2010 close friend of mine the guy that suffered road rage funny enough he was nicked with a, with about one and a quarter kilos uh in the car uh, i think he resisted arrest a little bit but he would have done because he's that's how he is um and for me being slightly i suppose i was trying to be slightly ignorant i was kind of hoping gutted he'd been arrested because now i've got 40 odd grand bill to pay and i've just lost a really good friend but second i was kind of hoping it's because it was something linked with his road rage he'd been something that caught up with him so i'm thinking is it has he been nicked or not and i, I is it to do with me is it to do with the conspiracy the fact is irrelevant the fact that he had been caught with drugs was enough then for me to think well i've got to shut down so what the police will do is i'll keep though with there being a in this notice there is a, um, an informant involved that person will manipulate the situation to try and get you to keep Keep selling because I'd shut down. I thought, no, that's it, I'm done, I'm finished. This, this is it's on top. We're, we're going to get arrested. I need to do damage limitation now. But this guy kept so I'll just do, I've got a friend who will do something for you, just you know, just do, just do a little bit. I said, No, I do not want to, I've had enough. I'm finished, I'm done. This was the guy that was managing it for me. But another month went by, and, and the guy said, Look, you know, that needs somebody I know needs something. Can you can you sort out? And I thought, Oh, all right. So I made a couple of phone calls, sent this guy down to the south to, to collect something. And uh, he got arrested, so that was the first thing I'd done since the previous arrest. The next guy got nicked straight away. I thought, well, that's weird. Um, seems to me like it's definitely on top now. Just to do two, to get two arrests in in over a space of a month, literally a month apart, and him getting nicked straight away. So clearly he's being watched. Right, well, that's it. I'm definitely done. So another month goes by, and it's New Year's Eve. Um, a chap that was always, that I used to supply to said, oh. Um, so like it's New Year's Eve mate. I need to get someone sorted. I said, mate, I am out of it. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm already in trouble. I don't want to be in any more trouble. He said, look, can you put me into someone? I said, look, I'll give you a number, but I'm nothing to do with it. So I gave this chap, this, gave me each other's numbers, basically. So he wanted an ounce of cocaine. I thought, let them get on with it. I'm, I've already involved myself now by giving them the numbers. That is conspiracy alone. So someone thinks that just giving a number is okay. It's not. You've already conspired. If, it, if you weren't there, that deal would never happen. So I have, have to have to look at how a conspiracy works. So I give him the number. Now New Year's Eve is midday. Get a phone call from the chap that wants the goods and oh, I can't get hold of your mate. Ring him. I'm trying. So I'll ring him for it. So I rang him. Said, yeah, I said, can you ring him? He's trying to get hold of this This is all of a sudden that link, that circle has just been sealed by these phone calls. They met up. He drove away. He got arrested. I thought, well, it's pretty clear to me <laughs> what's going on. So three people got arrested in three deals over three months. And that is clearly definitive proof that I was clearly being watched and things were going on. So time goes by uh, April 2011. uh, I was at work. I was running a business at the time. This is my exit strategy. I'd already kind of almost made it. But that's probably another story. And three or four unmarked focuses pull up outside. I thought this is the business mate. I used to work in motorsport, it was called launch motorsport. So I used to develop cars for competition use. I used to race. And this is part of the ill gotten gains. I think of me living that lavish lifestyle of trying to move out of selling drugs into opening the garage. And I actually got the garage opened. It was there and I finally made it. I fell at the last hurdle, but that's, yeah, that's something else. Yeah, it was, it was difficult because of the recession. It was, oh, I mean, I opened the garage the 1st of October, 2010. The investigation started the 23rd of september of that same year so literally i'd open the garage a week after they'd started watching it's inevitable it was going to happen so you should have,
0: the... you should have built yourself a general lee
1: <laughs> yeah i know they always escape yeah. they always escape from the cops and got out of jail i know i know i should have built should have built should have got back in the tank again i'd have been all right um yeah so i think it was around about the 14th of April, uh, 14th of april 2011 they these cars turned up and I thought well that's it then you know so I walked out to say good morning rich jones yeah right we're arresting you for conspiracies blow cocaine etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. so right okay anything you say or well, <laughs> what can i say didn't say anything went back was interviewed i was released on bail which was surprising did you get a brief yeah i did yeah yeah i did and and do you know what this is this is the really crazy thing about it i i didn't know what to do because I actually really like the police. I've got so much time for the police. I have got. I've never at any point seen the police as the enemy. I've just seen them as the other side of the coin, doing doing a job which they have to do. With my dad's background, I've got huge respect for the police. And I felt if I'm going to be going no coin, I feel like I'm being a right idiot. Here. I don't want to make. I don't want to make their job hard. And that sounds really daft because I've got that much time for them. But my brief said, look, what do you want to do? I said, well, oh, I got I got nothing to hide. I'm trying to play the innocent man. I said, oh, I'll, I'll talk, but I'm. I'm clever enough not to drop anyone in the crap, but you you are going to get yourself in trouble by just purely commenting and speaking because they are going to find a way to reel you in, which is what they have to do during the interview process to reel you in and get you to um, either look stupid or say something which you didn't want to say or say something which conflicts something you said earlier. And that's just the process that you go through. And and although I thought I did a pretty good job on the interview, and I I actually thoroughly enjoyed it, I quite like being interrogated. That's how it felt, and I quite like the thought. Oh, this is this is great, this is this, is... but it's real, it's not a game, it's real. And I, I didn't really take it if I'd have really thought about it, I'd have just gone no comment all the way through. Uh, but I was released on bail, which was which was great until then. I got to start explaining to my family and everyone else, and the, why were the police around the garage and everything else? So then you're already on this decline, things are already starting to go very wrong, and then I get arrested again in July. By sorry, I was arrested by Evan and Somerset Soccer, Serious Organized Crime, now known as the NCA, the National Crime Agency. So they're they're as high up as they get. Uh, I was arrested by Soccer, then from Gloucestershire, who were doing an investigation with Thames Valley, and they were associated with my suppliers. So they're taking down the whole network now of, of, of myself and, and all my runners and, and not so much anyone I'm supplying to because they're not really interested in them. I certainly want the guys above. So then all my co-defendants get arrested with Gloucestershire. So I was arrested twice for conspiracy. And then the second one, they actually reminded me in prison. They reminded me a week later, I went back to sign bail a week later. they said, right, we're we're keeping you in there. And I thought, oh, great. So that was my first time with going into prison. That was the when was that? The fourth, fifth of August. Yeah, fifth of August 2011.
0: Did that bear any similarities with when you joined the mob? yeah right.
1: yeah scary really because you just automatically default to military mind and the, the, the thing right i've got to learn a lot now i need to adapt to to however whatever's whatever's through these doors is going to be unfamiliar and whoever are through these doors i don't know who they are they could be a threat are they friend are they foe you're assessing everyone's friend or foe friend or foe most of these people are actually quite benign And they're not really a problem. They're just going about their daily business. But you you do go into automatic default, and all of your all the trainers, which has been twenty years before, however long ago, it all just suddenly comes flooding back to you. And then you survive. You you adapt to survive in there. And then you go in there, and you think. I think my first thought was, um, I was in a prison cell all day in Gloucester with a chap who'd been on the run for god knows how long and he he wasn't too healthy he smelt bad um he was a heavy smoker he was a heavy drinker and we got chatting and he said do you want to stay on induction with me because this i thought this guy's clearly been inside a lot he knows how it works he knows what it's like so i thought well better the devil you know he's not a bad guy he's just some guy that's been on the street so i thought well i'll go on induction with him because it will make sense so we arrived on the wing at about seven o'clock on the night in Gloucester prison, which is now closed for thought, while. Wow, wow, this is great. It's like, it's just like on the telly, but it was really quiet. And uh, you go into your cell and the first thing that struck me was the fact there was a TV in there. Oh, we've got a telly. That's dead, Andy. I thought it was going to be like a room with nothing like a bucket in the corner. Oh, we've got a toilet. Oh, that's fantastic. And I thought oh wait, This is, I've been in worse. It's going to be great. It's going to be fine. So I dived on the bottom bunk and then I'm led down. And the toilet is right next to my head, literally a foot away. Now he's this guy, I won't say his name, nice enough guy, heavy smoker. All he does all night is he's smoking and drinking prison tea. And the first thing that struck me, which is probably a problem, is he was being given his medication through the hatch in the door because he can't open the door, they just deliver it through the hatch. And he's on, he's coming off of alcohol. So I think he's given something called Librium, I think. Yeah. That is that correct. So he's cheeked it which means he's put it in his cheek and he's he's done the, that to make sure that he's taken it but he hasn't it's in there and they've gone and he's sat outside and he starts crushing this pill up i thought what's he doing i said what are you doing mate so i'm gonna do it this while get i'll get a hit off it then i thought oh, okay and that, that that's the kind of thing i need there sniff sniffing this pill or whatever format it came in off the side i thought great so now i'm letting this bed all through that all i remember is him smoking drinking tea and taking a pee Next to my head and it stinks because it's and I and I could almost taste it, it's that close. And that's my first night in prison was being surrounded because I'm a non-smoker, being surrounded by smoke, and this guy weeing next to my head all the time, and then just being out. And he didn't sleep, he just seemed to sort of phase in and out of smoking and drinking his tea and having a wee, and it was all night. And I thought, gosh, so we're put into the same cell. Three weeks I spent with him. He was a he was a nice lad, but not my cup of tea. I was given bell, luckily, uh Fortunately for me, although not for the community, there were the riots kicked off in all the cities in August 2009, uh, 2011, sorry. when everyone was kicking off around London in various areas. My brief said we'll post bail, wait until they finish the rest of people from these riots because they're going to need the room in the prisons and we'll get you we'll get you out. I thought, okay, so on the 9th of September I was, got, I was given bail, I was released and then I was put on a tag for nine months waiting for the trial to come through and I ran trial then. For two counts of conspiracy um which was me linking i was like the link between these two organizations mine and my suppliers and i think that they needed the two arrests to have enough evidence to really to, to put the net in the coffin for me if you like because there was never any drugs or money found on me they could kind of say lifestyle but because of the recession it was difficult all of my accounts were completely ripped off completely overdrawn because it was tough times um Everything I had was played into the business at the time to try and to to make a break. So financially, I had nothing. I had nothing left. I was totally broke. So they couldn't even do me a lifestyle, which which was fortunate. So I was found guilty on one count and not guilty on another. And that was probably one of the most difficult three or four days. While the jury are out deliberating and deciding whether you're guilty or not, is like that's a tough one, especially when you get the you get the in the court centre. All people in the case of so-and-so please report back to court number five and you think here we go this is it and you're standing there and it was kind of like a yeah it was up and down because there were i think five of us sat in the dock at the time There's, there was that many of us in the two trials but they, they tried me on the one trial with two kinds so it was complicated but basically i was stood in the in the dock with my co-defendants to my right two on my left two on my right and uh they said count one now do you find so so guilty yet guilty and you see in the public gallery his His whole world fall apart. His family, his his girlfriend, his wife, people collapsing, people crying, people screaming. Uh, Then the other co-defendant from Serbia, who was the the far of the supply chain, guilty. Um, And then me, uh, count one, not guilty. I thought, God, I'm not a religious man. But I said, Thank God for that. Two guys to my left got not guilty, and I thought, Wow, I've got, I've I've done it. I've got away with this. And I thought, No, I've got count two yet. So I just find Mr. Jones on count two, guilty, and it's like. I looked across to my wife and her face, you could just see her whole world just fall apart. Now you think that there is the punishment alone. And it, that that I think the devastation there is really bad.
0: I'm just going to bomb us some stuff here, Rich. So, yeah. that moment when you've got to go back in them doors, yeah. stand in the dock, and it's like, oh my God, I, I could have it, my fucking ass handed to me here. Yeah. Like, had you been able to go back in a time machine and not do any of that stuff, would you have not done it?
1: <laughs> it's a really good question because um at that point there and then right there at that point we in a heartbeat i'd have gone back and i'd have i'd have wished i hadn't come out of the army i would have wished anything yeah. to not see my wife's face out to see her world just suddenly get shattered I'd have done anything anything would have changed that I'd have, I'd have done it in a heartbeat ask the question now with going through what i've been through and the transition and the chance to rethink about everything. No, I have to I I had to experience all those bad things to be able to do what I'm doing now. But back then, yeah, in a heartbeat, I would have I would have done anything I could to change everything. You know, I said let's just forget everything and wipe the slate clean.
0: Yeah, so we're we're it's the old hindsight, isn't it? It, Yeah. And you get the double high at the hindsight at the time is God, I wish I had done this shit. Wish I'd just gone and got a fucking job, right? Yeah. But that but us looking back now is hang on we we can't be living in regret we put it down to experience yeah we we try to do the best we can for society in our community and we try to be you know a good good person isn't it really as, 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 yeah. much, as, think- as much as we can <laughs> be
1: <laughs> you need to own your mistakes don't you you need to own it a little bit and work from it and if i think if you can't don't get wrong there are some offenses which you you just simply cannot own you know some things that people do which are always going to be with them forever and they could never never use that offense to to better anyone's life but i'm fortunate that my offense i can and it's not pride i'm not proud of it but i can actually say look this is what i've done i've made some really bad mistakes i've never actually physically hurt anyone intentionally although people have been hurt people have been there is damage along the way but i'm using this now to do my best to try and Help other people, other veterans who who might think, you know, if I could see, if I could sit back now and look at a version of myself 25 years ago, I'd sit back and think, you are in for it, mate. <laughs> you are really in trouble. He yeah. just doesn't see it.
0: Let, let's also just for the sake of balance and not deluding ourselves as we do as a society all the time, right? Mm-hmm. It's a two-way door, mate. then people that bought off you didn't give a fuck whether you were going to get arrested the next day and loo, loo, uh, lose. Interesting point. Yeah. yeah, they they and I'm not blaming them. I'm saying mm. that we make choices in life. You know, yeah. we make them and we have to live by them. It's just the way yeah. it is. You weren't twisting anyone's arm. You no. weren't down at the school playground handing out freebie samples to get people you know, you know, no,
1: no, I'm no,
0: not no. I'm not trying to excuse anything. I'm just saying it how it is, right.
1: Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point because you can a lot of it people think about self preservation don't they? They're, most people most of the time are going to worry about themselves and how. How things affect them a lot of veterans tend to sort of be out with thinking and care more about the people around them and certainly your, your brothers and your sisters you think more about how they're going to be. And you're right if, if if there was an arrest above me in the chain, I was quite happy to take supply from them. They've been nicked. That affects me. Part of me is thinking, well, that's it, that's done. We all knew what we signed up for when we did this. When we made these deals, we know what we're signing up for. No one's being forced or coerced into anything. This is all free will. It doesn't make it right. It just means that people go in there with their eyes wide open. And if their eyes aren't wide open, they need to open their eyes and look around a little bit, because if people are going to step into any form of the arena with, with not just drugs, any criminality, there's going to be damage. It's illegal for a reason you know because there there is going to be cost there's going to be damage there's going to be pain there's going to be victims there's always a victim of anything anything which as a negative consequence is going to be a victim somewhere along the line and if I if someone said to me do you think about your victims and when you're supplying that much you don't directly see a victim as such not like i'm going around someone's house and handing them a bag of heroin and seeing them decline and seeing them getting kicked out of the house seeing them lose everything they own you, you're so detached from that that you don't see it. But if someone said, "How many victims are there in mind?" It's, it's countless, countless victims. Thousands and thousands of people have suffered in some way or other. It could be really insignificant. They might, they might have just missed. They might not be able to afford to buy their favourite, you know, favourite food because they spent a little bit too much money on on coke the weekend before, and they just can't quite afford to buy something the following week. They haven't gone hungry, but that there is a victim. Yeah, Rich,
0: I'm not trying. Well, maybe I am trying to play devil's advocate. And I'm also trying to just shed light on this situation. So we can start dealing with it as adults. Yeah, right. As a society, I mean, as opposed to this bloody childish name calling, and, and superstition, and and etc, etc, etc. I'm just gonna say, no, those people are victims, probably of childhood trauma right? Yeah, yeah. They are victims to other people that, that, that I'm not defending drug. If anyone's listening and thinks that then you you, you, you really misunderstand me, right? I'm trying to make the world better for all of us. Right. And I have that insight because I've been on these sides of the fence, right? What, what I'm saying is, you know, you've got 10 people in a room on a Saturday night, they've all had a Bacardi and coke. They're waiting for their guy to come, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, who hasn't been there? Everyone's chucking in the fifties, a ton, mm-hmm. two. You, you, there's like a thousand pound in your hands. Yeah. You is he cool yet? Is he? You know.
1: Yeah.
0: Dealers that. Shut the fuck up. If you call me again, <laughs> I ain't coming. If I say I'm coming, I'm coming. All right. Yeah. You. Sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Right. And yeah. he comes. Oh wait, mate. Want a drink? Want a drink? Yeah. Do you want? Do you want one? It, it's. Yeah. Like, is yeah. anyone fucking forcing those people? No. No. no what it is, is for various different reasons, sometimes just like the example I gave, this is social, you've, you've got together with your mates on Saturday night, you know, yeah. instead of down in a bottle of JD and puking over the you know, the girl sat next year, you just want to have a bit sniff. And I'm not yeah. saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's what it is, right.
1: I think that's a really good point because the yeah. amount of phone traffic you get at a certain level when you're certainly selling the, the, the grams to the people, and this wasn't oh, someone I was privy to. But the amount of phone traffic going incoming calls to someone who's selling compared to outgoing calls is phenomenal. You're right. Are oh, you Are you going to be long because everyone's waiting and something you're mindful of at a certain point is supply. I've got to make sure this gets to this point here you know, to be there to be there to be ready for the weekend. So we start our week of supply on like a tuesday to ensure that it gets to where it needs to go ready for that weekend so you're right that the traffic is usually incoming they say where are you where are you where are you yeah and what i was
0: getting to rich is like you're looking at a guy anyone's watching this now i anyone around would say i lost everything right Mm -hmm. i didn't i i actually gained the world through my experiences and i'm i wouldn't change them for a thing right I haven't made any mistakes in my life, Rich, because if you meet my son, yeah. he's the most perfect little boy in the world. I'm yeah. I'm I am the luckiest man alive to have the best son in the world, right? Yeah. If I hadn't done all this stuff, I wouldn't have him. And no, yeah. you know, no one takes him away from me, right? Yeah. And I have even begun to tell you about my partner, right? I'm a yeah. very lucky man. The choices yeah. I made in my life led me i'm not saying other people do what i did yeah they led me here and if people think i'm going to fucking apologize you go yeah. fuck yourselves you know you you yeah. dilute you live in the delusion called the matrix right yeah all i'm saying is is i i was mentally unwell i i was pissing off the hong kong triads yeah. i was doing silly stuff like handstands on skyscrapers right uh my parents were faced with the you know the medical profession said to my dad steve you, you need to put them in a mental health unit and yeah, he, he probably won't ever come out. Right. That's how Ill I was right. Yeah. My point is no one ever forced me into that situation. Right. Rich, no drug dealer I <laughs> I needed that outlet for this trauma that was driving my behavior, it was the trauma. Right. No yeah. one forced me to do. You know, if if you'd said no, Chris, you're looking a bit ropey, mate. You're looking a bit uh, all right, Rich. Yeah, I'd have probably told you some Fable, right? I want yeah. a liar per se, but yeah. I wouldn't have wanted you to know actually how weird I was because I I want you to think I'm cool, right? I'd have yeah. just gone to the next guy and told them whatever story they wanted yeah. to hear to be able, you, you know, and um, like yeah, you know, again, I'm I'm not trying to do defend anything. I'm just trying to add clarity to it all, and you yeah, know, I, I I see people because of our society we have to like apologise for our beer, and it's like Hang yeah. on, the whole we should be looking at why do people suffer trauma? What is it that's driving that trauma? Why are parents, for example, putting that trauma on kids? Look at the situation at the moment. Let's not say any names. How many kids are at home now being abused, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the situation. How many wives are being battered? How many yeah. husbands are being battered, right? Yeah.
1: Mental health is taking a yeah. map. How be.
0: much trauma is going to come out of this? And then when that little kitty gets to 15 and then has a sniff problem because they feel like not the beat and abused little kid anymore yeah then you put them in prison or, yeah. or you get the person that's sold that sold them that and blame it all on them we are deluded in this society we are utterly deluded we don't understand that a substance is just a plant that grows in the dirt that's all it is right okay it can be processed for a factory into some what but it's an inanimate object, it's as stupid as that pen, right? Yeah. The notion that that can give me a mental health problem is just yeah. beyond stupid, right? Yeah. The driver is our life experience most often, childhood, not always, you know, but there is something missing in your life, isn't it? If you have to be waiting for that dealer on a Friday night going, come on guys, chip in, is he here yet? You know, you know we need to answer that question. Sorry, yeah. folks, going off, going off on one there, but, <laughs> I just uh, thing, though, isn't it? absolutely you know absolutely I'm I'm not afraid to tell the truth, mate, because people can think what they want want of me, and they very often do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's cool because you know we're all gonna die. Who gives a fuck, right? That's it. Um, that's but at least when I die, I was honest and I want I yeah. wasn't a, you know, I wasn't a coward. Um yeah. well pro- probably am at some things, but um, <laughs> yeah, bloody fascinating, Rich, you know. I think you probably cleared up a lot of stuff well between us um, yeah. that hopefully can help. Um, th- th- there's, there's, there's all, we could talk again and again, let let's finish off in a set by talking about your actual prison time. Yeah. You made me laugh when you say induction, anyone yeah. who's ever joined the Marines knows well before I'll tell you the story. When we joined, it was induction, right? You're in there for a brainwashing right that's that's what the military mass, is right
1: mass grooming, isn't it
0: <laughs> it's a great brainwashing in the marines it's fucking brilliant you know yeah there's aspects of it that most of the time it it, it it's brilliant you can't defend everything right <laughs> but but it's called induction for a reason no now it's called foundation <laughs> oh really
1: that's very political isn't it
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest that's a beautiful word as well because yeah. off the back of my time in the forces it was a foundation yeah, I've launched. You know, I've I've taken the good from it. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to to your prison time, um, because that's just you know, I've narrowly avoided prison. The most I've done is nights in the cells. Yeah. Again, that's enough to make you go, oh, Christ, what the? F- why did I yeah. do that? You know. Yeah. Um. Um. But yes, so far, mate, just want to thank you for, you know, being brave Liberty. enough to tell your story, um, being a beacon of, of light. Also, we must talk about um, your involvement in, in charity. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: before we go, and of course, we're going to shout your book. So, um, one sec. Yeah. So, Rich, we were um, saying about the, what's it like to be military and go in jail? Yeah. Um, Did you have any kind of? So, how many years did you get and how
1: many years did you serve? So, a sentence of 15 years, which was because I was expecting about 10 or 11, which is still a lot, but I was sentenced to 15 years. So, the way that it works then, and it is slightly different now depending on certain factors, but you'll do half of that in custody. So, seven and a half years. But what they will do, they will take away any time of remand. And any time on tag, if you if you curfew to more than 12 hours in your house, they'll take off your sentence. So that's four and a half months of my sentence was reduced because I was on bail, because I couldn't go out of the house for that duration. So effectively, I did just over seven years in prison in one hit. I'm still on license now till 2027.
0: Right. Was that um, where were you like Exeter or Bristol or somewhere?
1: So yes, initially in Gloucester, as I would said. Um, for those five weeks on remand, and then when I was found guilty on May the 17th, 2012, remanded into Bristol, which was an experience, it's not, a, it was worse now, it wasn't great then, it's old Victorian prison, even the new wings are rough, you know, the, and my experience on there, and I'll, I'll go into that now if you want, is you first arrive and, and you're in a holding cell, with everyone who's just come from court, and I think these guys may have been out for the day in the court appearance, so they've they've already come out of the prison, so they're just flowing through the system, or you'd be getting newly inducted into the prison, so you're there with people that, with with my co-defendants and other people, and you're you're weighing each other up automatically, because you you don't know who these people are, what they're in for, or what they've done, and they're thinking the same thing about you, so. Automatically, I'm just just veterans do it. You're just assessing people. There's no point in assessing the exits and ways in and ways out because you ain't getting out. So that kind of gets taken away from you. So you've got to do is focus on the people, the individuals, and listening to the noises next door in the in the in the admissions or the reception department where they where they process you into the prison. That's what you wait for. So you're already automatically. I think the first bit, even before that, when you get put into the the old Geoamy or the G4s or Circo buses. Uh, the sweat boxes we call them, the little tiny cubicle, not much bigger than being stuck inside of a big fridge to be fair. That's for me was comfortable because I'm a tank gunner. I'm fine with that. I'm used to looking out of a little window. I'm comfortable with this, not a problem. But other people are already banging their doors, already kicking them, it off. So you're hearing the chaos of what's going to be, of, of what your life's going to be like for the next. You're not thinking seven years, you're not thinking 15, years. just thinking it's a long time. Um, so you go into the into, yeah, call through to the reception and you sit in front of a member of staff, people call us, I call them staff because they're people that are doing a job, a lot of them are ex-forces, treat them with respect and they will definitely treat you with respect, you know, yeah, you give me, you, yeah, Jones, come here, it's great, just like being back in the army, and love it, perfect. Some guys take a section, oh, I'm not Jones, I'm called so-and-so, you know, that's your name, they're speaking to you, speak just do as you're told um and they'll identify various things about your healthcare needs and any mental health any physical problems any allergies all these sort of things where have you come from did you serve in the armed forces yes i did and you, you declare that i declared it because one's I thought well why not uh secondly it's gonna have to give me a break at some point surely there must be that must count for something somewhere in my life you know and then thirdly is it, it have they served in the forces are you are you gonna get a little bit of a touch on the wing you, know, you, you you're weighing up this this survival of like, what can I do? How am I going to get through this? What's in front of me? Because I just don't know. First time in prison. Um, and then you move from this, you're given some food. Now you're seeing prisoners who have got trusted jobs. So they're giving you your food first, first chance of eating, well, not the first, but first time in Bristol of eating prison food. Diabolical, it's horrendous. I mean, make it makes the stuff in the cookhouse look great. It's really poor. Um, and then you go on to the wing. And I've been on the wing before in Gloucester, but Bristol wing was bigger. It was Three floors rather than two, and oh sorry, four floors rather than two. It's like this is huge, but again, it's 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 night time. They're all locked up. No one's there. So um yeah, the first night was was okay. You're in prison issue clothes because you everything gets taken off of you. You're searched. You you checked thoroughly for anything. Um You go into the into into your cell, and the girls with was a nice guy. He was he was. Um, suffering with some healthcare issues. He was like another one, weeing all night. Why do I get these people around the, on the toilet all night? Um, problem with his, um, uh, with with his glands somewhere, But <laughs> either way, by the by. So I went out for exercise the following morning, which was the Friday. So I thought I'm gonna go on the yard, get some fresh air. It was a spring. It was actually a really hot spring in 2012. A little yard, there were only four of us went on there. Me, two guys, different nationalities. I think I was the only guy from the UK on there um And I was walking around the yard, and just on my own, not really bothered about other people, just just minding my own business. And this guy came up to me and said, "I oh, want you in for me. Just been found guilty of conspiracy. oh right, blah blah blah." And he, and he's, we're talking about you. He's he's just the same thing. he's just he's just on been remanded. So people on remand are very paranoid people because they haven't yet had their case come through. So they're always thinking that who's on. The, and within five minutes, he peeled away from me. Spoke to his mate, a big black lad. Then he come back to me. My next lap, you go round and round the circles round the yard. You've just got to walk. You can't do straight. You've got to do a lap. Come back, and he starts. His, his, his tone had changed, and I don't understand why. He was. He was saying, "Well, I didn't really do it anyway." And he was, he was quite defensive, and as if to say that he was trying to plead his innocence. Whereas before he was talking about his case quite openly. Now he wasn't. What the hell is going on here? um so a few days passed and realized that people on the wing just look at me in a really weird way and it's a big wing you're talking i think gotta be a couple hundred people on there you know, maybe maybe more than that no one was talking to me so eventually I moved on to another wing where my co-defendants were and a few days passed and they found out. do you realize what the rumor was on on g wings something, no they thought you were undercover police because of how i looked. so i had a wedding ring all the time and and, and the whole mentality of the people on that not all of them but certainly the majority thought I was the undercover police because I, how I conducted myself. It's, you don't look like a criminal. You don't come across as you're. Hey, I'll, I'll,
0: when you, when you hold yourself as a service person, mm. people, they sense something and when, when you're in the paranoia of the drug world, and I, yeah. I had this several, several times over the years, they, they see your short back and sides. Yeah. Well, yeah, very short
1: back inside. Now it's
0: now it's short fucking everything. Yeah, <laughs> but they see that and um, they mistake it for oh, you know they think oh oh yeah. oh, oh oh oh. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah,
1: I was told a few people said you you were because of the, how you carried yourself. No nobody attacked me because I was like hyper vigilant, and we are, aren't we? We can't help but be hyper vigilant. And I was I wasn't going to stay in the in in my cell and going out if someone's got a problem they've got a problem let's just deal with it and deal with it They there. don't want to but you have to mm-hmm. and yeah when i found out they all thought i was undercover it was more of a case of you just need to get stabbed or cut from behind you know that's what it would have amounted to so but the, the difficult thing was even though i was on my wing and I had my co-defendants who had been there on remand for about a year advised me said no this guy he is not undercover trust me we know he's undercover no he's definitely undercover they're so ignorant because they're just judging you by how you look. Their perception of someone that's involved in in that level of criminality looks a certain way, acts a certain way, they're of a certain maybe a certain nationality or, or skin color. They just couldn't relate to me. They couldn't relate to me that I was actually who I was and that I'd done the the, the offense that I had done. So it seemed really odd. But yeah, it was a bit um, it was a bit worrying because then I'm thinking, well, I've now got to watch my back. I haven't done anything wrong. But I've got to watch my back, and that was difficult thing about being in in Bristol on remand. I was I was there for five weeks until sentencing. At this point, I didn't know how long I was going to be doing. I just knew that I'd been remanded for that offence. Sentencing came on the 29th of June, um, about five weeks later, where they hit me with the 15, uh, and my co-defendants got 18 each, and they were the highest. I was an expert one down. There was a number of different sentences all the way down through all of us. Uh, and then we were moved from, we call it a black and white, which is HMP, which is which is the, the public sector prisons. And I'll, I'll explain this in a sec, to a prison called Loudham Grange, which is in Nottingham, run by Circo. So it's a private prison. Now, you've got two kinds of jail. Now, there are four, I think there's something in the region of, let's say, 40 prisons in the UK. I don't know how many there are. There's quite a few. Um, 14 of which, and I think 13 now, because one of them lost the contract are privately run, they're, they're, they, they take a tender from the government, and they run the, the prison as a business for private security. So you've got Circo, G4S and Sodexo, the French company who own or run these 14 or 13 prisons. So when you go into the private sector, it totally changes, because you're no longer looking at a prison officer who's been who's, who's run, working for the government in the black and white, they're in G4S uniforms or Circo uniforms, first name terms, they'll call me rich. I'll call him Dave, you know, and it's all oh, this class is great. And this, this, the, the prisons are new, you know, this live and Grange at the time in, in 2012 was only 14 years old and the prison terms, that's brand new. You walk in, it's, it's like, you're gonna say they're not trying to make it sound nice, but it was really nice <laughs> compared to Bristol, where people have been taking a dump on the floor and shitting everywhere. This was really nice. It was single cells. We had digital TV, we had at one point, Sky TV, we had telephones in our cell. We had to pay for the use of the phones, pay for the calls you would do normally. We had the showers in your cell, everything. And at this point, if, if this is as bad as it gets, then this ain't bad at all. So yet that kind of already you're thinking, well, at least this part is boxed off, I'm comfortable. The food's still crap, but at least I'm comfortable in my cell. I've got my own privacy, I've got my phone, I've got my television. And you can work your way up the tier system to a point where you're, um, you've got a three tier system in, in the prison and it's called the IEP. And if no one's ever heard of this before, you've got you come into the prison as a standard level, which means you get three. I think about three visits. You're allowed to earn a certain wage by a certain pay band and you can have a certain amount of money sent in to you. Plus, you can. You know, that's where your prison status is. You you are at standard. Now, if you demonstrate that you're trustworthy and you behave behaving yourself, you're not causing problems. After about 10 weeks, you can be raised to enhanced level, which means you get another visit, it means you can earn more money, you can build a higher pay band, and you, you, you can earn these privileges, you can then have a, a stereo, you can have an Xbox, a DVD player. So you then start making life as comfortable as you can, you can then get a better job in the prison, so you can earn better wages, you can you can buy nicer food for yourself. So you talk to, or demonstrated, if you can behave, you can have it pretty good, because with every job in prison comes, Comes its perks. You might you might get a job in the kitchen. You can actually cook the food yourself rather than it being destroyed by the people cooking it for you. So you might be able to to have something like a piece of cheesecake. You don't get that for your dessert, but to 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 make it fresh and eat it yourself, it's just it's the simplest things. And what what you learn is to suddenly realize that the most simplest things in life hold a value. They 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 become cherished. And you relearn what's important in life, like your family, like your friends. You learn to live with nothing. So everything, everything means something, you know. And and that's what I found from it is is the simplest pleasures in life, which you cannot have in prison, like walking through a field. Hate it with a pack on my back, but it's lovely when you just get a chance to do it with 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 just because you can. And so all of a sudden your mentality changes, and that's what you need to do is adjust your mentality. So I spent two and a half years in that prison and and I engage with the veteran system. So there are veterans in custody. I'll probably go on, I'll go on to this now because I think this is kind of the path that I took. And I was offered the opportunity to sort of like be a, a key player in the veterans at Loudon Grange. But it was difficult because category B and category A prisons, and they're running the tier of security. A is the high security, then it's B, then it's C, then it's D, then you're out. Category A prisons and some of the Bs There are a lot of extremism going on in these places and unfortunately these guys tend to run the wings because they've got that many people behind them. uh, Fanatics extremism that most or a lot of veterans have to stay underground They can't always declare a service because they become a target. Wearing a poppy can be problematic in some of these prisons because you're then putting a target on your chest. This is really difficult. And and in the Category B, it was hard to declare to be a veteran. The services weren't really there because they weren't really catering for it or they're unable to cater for it. It changed into a Category C called HMPO, which is my opinion and of a lot of others is a brilliant prison. It is graded number one in the UK because of the director. And he's a brilliant man. And the staff that work with him are exceptional because of his ethos into the prison is something else. You know, He, he will empower you to follow your dreams, as long as your dreams are true and, and you're not going to cause harm. So if you've got a genuine idea and it's it's, good, it's for the it's for the better, for yourself or for other people, it'll encourage you to follow that and it will facilitate you that. And I'll go into that in a sec. So I moved to HMP Oakwood, which is in Wolverhampton. I could have come down to near Bristol. I could have come down to Earlstoke, Stoke, which is in Devizes, which is a good job, but it's not private. And Oakwood is private run by G4S. I went there because i had single cells i had the shower in a cell i had the phone i had all the same stuff that i was used to and that got me through the first two and a half years of my sentence so why would i change that because i could be in devices i'm still locked up or i could be in wolverhampton i'm still locked up and my wife at the time said look it's up to you if you're you're only seeing us once every couple of weeks why would you deprive yourself of all these nice things and be in a different prison just for sake of a, of an hour's visit when if you're in your own cell, you can ring us every night, you're not standing in a queue on the wing to get to use a public phone and everyone hearing you say how much you love me or how upset you, or, or I you are or worried about the kids, you know, so that private phone and, and that facilities in HMPO could make a made a massive difference. Wow. And it, it, it is a huge thing. Honestly, it is such a big deal to have those simple things to to capture to out those family ties to speak to people when you want Christmas day, can you imagine? Everybody wants to make a phone call Christmas Day to their family. You've got two phones on the wing. You've got 89 people all want to ring up and say, Happy Christmas. Can you imagine the pressure that you'd have on these wings without these phones in your cell? You know, it's, it's invaluable. Honestly, it makes such a difference. So I arrived at Oakwood and I was there was a great man called Ian Rock. He's since passed of cancer several years ago and he was ex-RMP and he was the manager on a wing called Douglas Wing. Which is where I went. It was a lifestyle's wing and long term. He got me on there within about five weeks of landing in Oakwood. Following month, and this was in January 2015, he gave me a job as a veterans representative. And the guys at the time and in there weren't really proactive. They were they were veteran reps, but they weren't really doing anything about it. They were too busy in life. And I thought no, this no good. We got guys in here. So I started to go around the wings, find the veterans check the list if it, it was valid if it's up to date and just create a new list and start to publicize it through the system now the good thing with these private gels is that in the, old, in the older prisons if you want to apply for anything it's all done on apps or applications paper they get lost most of the private gels have got an atm or electronic kiosk touchscreen you you input your it's, it's biometric so you input your number and you, you scan your fingerprint it opens up your your login, your details, and you can order your food, you can order your, you can book your visits, you can top up your phone credit, you can do anything on there. So you can also, you also get notices coming through on that, it's for general notices to see. So I put out notices on there through the staff to say, are you a veteran, have you served this, so blah, 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 we'll contact us and we'll come and find you. So I spent a couple of years building this veteran database, sorting out meetings, getting staff to come in and you know, look at the guys who are due for release, what do they need when they're getting out? And where are they go, have they got somewhere to live? Have they got any issues they need to sort of pick up with? And trying to get re- reboot the whole veteran support in Oakwood. And over the first year or so, I sort of supported that many veterans. I'd I'd identify. We spent a lot of time chatting in your cells you know, talking about the problems that you've had. These are guys in for all different offences, but the offence kind of gets left at the door a little bit. What, what I was looking at is the difficulty in the transition of what got you in jail, mate. You know, why did it go so bad? And I've noticed so many similarities in what these guys had faced and, and what they'd experienced. And even some of the staff suffered the same problems because we had staff on the meetings, we, we had a network of staff that had served, which were really supportive. And I thought to myself, when you arrive in jail, um, probation will set you a, a sentence plan. And this helps you to address your, your, your offender behaviour. A part of this may include you one of you behaving and not reoffending, really But some of it is actually want might put you on a course. So if you're in for alcohol, you might have to do a substance misuse course, or if you're in for violence, you have to do some sort of anger management, you know, these sort of things. And I thought, there's no courses here really which address veterans for our mentality and our and our, our our mindset. Um, and if you put a veteran on an anger management course or a veteran on a mental health course and say, why, why do you keep flying off the handle mate? And he's not gonna talk about his PTSD in front of people which he doesn't know. You've already lost him straight away.
0: And they, um, and they ain't going to understand it anyway, are they? Not not mm-hmm. a bit service-based.
1: No, that's right. If someone's got PTSD from, a, from an accident or, or understandable, combat-related, and I can't say I've not got combat-related PTSD, but I understand the guys, I understand what they could have gone through. So I look back and I did some research as much as I could. So are there any courses which are written for veterans in prison to help us to address our mentality? No, nothing right. So I wrote one. So I sat there, I had access to a laptop through my job, as a mentor. And I wrote a course or programme based on my journey coming out of the army, Uh, of all the different things of all the different areas I knew I'd gone wrong in. And I wrote a 12 module course, which I then delivered to veterans in custody to start off as a few case studies, RAF, Royal Navy, Army, everyone right across the board, a couple of Marines, Um, did everyone across and got the case study results back in, presented that to the director and they said, right, okay, that's really good. We wanted to run it as a pilot in 2017. So I ran a five course uh, programme through 2017 as a pilot course, which I did, and that worked out really well. And then I started delivering the course officially in HMPO in 2018, prior to my release 2019. So while I was inside, I was, as well as developing my own release plans and coming out of prison, I started to deliver this course to veterans in custody about their mentality and 12 modules, I'm going to forget them, but the first one linked to our mentality and risk-taking behavior which is a big deal for most of us anyway that's one of the key areas that we suffer with um relationships about how we um adjust and our relationships change when we come out of forces because we do change ourselves you know we we go through this fundamental change of being someone who served to to a veteran not a civilian, a veteran and, and we go through a lot of changes and people around us are going to have to absorb those changes a dealt with trust my biggest errors me was trusting i trust any, i trust everyone because i'm used to trusting people or not trust anyone um, substance misuse mental health being realistic with yourself about these ridiculous dreams that we have about achieving anything which we know we can surrounded by like-minded company as a group of soldiers you can achieve massive things but you take that one person out and try and do it on your own with your civilian counterparts you're going to struggle so it's about setting yourself up to be realistic and understand that you're gonna you're gonna fall, you're gonna fail. Have, have achievable goals, um, employment, debt, and money management. You know, looking after yourself. There are so many different things I wanted to focus on, and that was where I was when I left. When I left in July 19. The plan was and is to go back into HMP Oakwood and deliver this course under funding to veterans in custody. Unfortunately, there were certain things happened last year around about spring, which which put a hold on that which we're going to readdress that as and when things return to normality, because there's a lot of lockdowns going on, you know, which which we have to understand. Right. now. Well,
0: let's not go getting political. But 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 because because we do that every podcast. But
1: let's just remember
0: all these people now that could be having your wonderful service, could be going on to be happy, productive, producing mentally well balanced people like like we have become. They're all denied that now in case some. 85 year old with an underlying heart condition might get the flu and die, you know. Yeah, it, it, and it's it is difficult.
1: It's a really bitter pill to swallow, but
0: it's it's, it's you just, know, this I'm I'm very verbal about it, mate, because you know, we're in a veterans suicide epidemic now, you know, mental health in this country is just at an all-time high. Yeah. Um, just when you think you're getting on top of things like child abuse, spousal abuse. Our, you know substance uh well we we <coughs> we just kicked all kick the ass you know <coughs> excuse me we just kicked all that in, in in into touch and yeah it's unacceptable it's just unacceptable um and why well it goes back to big pharmaceutical again
1: in it it's to make these so- sociopaths rich that's all it's about um yeah. they're lucky to some respects that I've, been, I've still got great support from the from the prisons um even the military i mean i've, I've so so privileged to whilst i was still in in custody you get released on thing called rotter which is released on temporary license I mean they will let you out for the day maybe under supervision maybe not and number of occasions i've been i've been into rf costford i've delivered a presentation to all the staff there i've been into uh Tutu signals in stafford delivered there I was the first person to ever go into uh, a police training school in Said near Bristol, and talk to them about veterans in custody, about Project here, the course I wrote, about the, the journey the veterans face and why of us may offend. And since then, even some have set up a veterans champion network with the support of veterans. So I've been really fortunate that people have bought into what I'm trying to do. And despite what's going on at the minute, it's still all there waiting to happen.
0: How have how have you been received then rich as a person with your history by these by the veterans community etc etc cetera, et cetera?
1: really well you get you're always gonna get someone who's going to take it for face value and maybe say something slightly derogatory but that's something i'm ready for and and, and to be fair i expect and and would wouldn't i'd be stupid to not except the fact some people are going to take exception and to my background um you're going to get people are going to say things but do you know what the vast majority and i'm talking 99 and even more than that are really good they're very very welcoming. when they look a bit deeper into it first thing they'll see is drug dealer oh scum yeah agreed but look a little bit further and look at what i'm trying to do now and then also they, they 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 do tend to come out and say, do you know what mate Fair play. Thank you for what you're trying to do. Because I'm not the sort of person that will sit around and just do nothing. You know, I, I have to be active. I have to keep doing. And, I, and I've got, I've got more to prove than most. I feel like I need to make up for a lot of years which I wasted being greedy, looking after myself. I think I've got a lot, got a lot of ground to make up. And you're going to get many, many people more determined than someone has been inside and has t- turned their life around. God, excuse us, mate. That's <laughs> right. I keep pulling the mic down by
0: the way, because there's an overgrown woodpecker hammering at the office next door. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I might go out on my twelve ball in a minute and Yeah, just going on a mate.
0: Well, this is um yeah. <coughs> oh, excuse me. No, <clears throat> yeah, I was gonna go off at a tangent but and um just one question I had. So did, did did it ever kick off in the prison? And had you adopted
1: any kind of strategy if it did? No. Do you not was I can't believe it. I was expecting it to be a rough ride. I was expecting it to always be some kind of scrapping and fighting, and it never was. I mean, th- th- I think the thing is, if you're you're going in there expecting to be fighting, you're going to be fighting. You're going to be having problems because that's your your approach. If you go in there expecting just to survive and you just assess it as it is, you look back and say, well, the people, what the, the only people reason people end up scrapping is because they're usually ups and no good. And it's a territorial thing or it's a money yoga, or a debt of some kind generally speaking it's down to a debt or an ego if you don't have any of those then you're, you're not going to have a problem i didn't have any not one incident i had one guy i put in his place two guys i put in their place um but that was that was just a you, you, if you smile a lot people get used to smiling when you, when you suddenly don't smile they know that you're they know you're serious and that's usually enough you know and there's only two people I ever had to sort of let say look rain it in mate you're going too far, and they do. It's because people people will push you a little bit. Maybe they're having issues in their own life. That's not my problem. No, I was lucky. I, mean, I don't think even any of my co-defendants have problems, but the nature of our offence, with it being a, a big deal in the press and the amount of us that were in there, the wings that you're on, the people you're around, the, most people who are likely to cause a problem just don't even see you as somebody they want to go near. You know, there is a hierarchy in prison lifers people in for organized crime and our robberies are generally floating at the top somewhere so most of the people who are going to be the so your scally's who are going to be in for the street robberies they're they're the, the more violent individuals that are in there but they don't even come near us they just they, they, they avoid us if anything and it's not out of fear i don't, I don't think it's even out of respect i think it's just they just think well they're not interested we're on a whole different level you know they're they're in for street crimes and they're, that's their thing we're not so no I was really lucky no, no I, mean, I didn't I witnessed some pretty rough things self harm horrendous the amount of self harm that you actually get exposed to inside it happens all the time but most people don't actually see it or witness it or or even have to 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 manage it themselves but that's something I learned a lot inside was the amount of self harm is is frightening and the, the lengths that some people will go to to do this self harm and I've seen some I thought i'd seen blood but i've seen a lot of blood yeah, it's
0: well look at chopper reed one of the world's hardest men chop chopped his own ears off because he can not knock it in the yeah on, on with one a particular do, wing
1: i witnessed a guy do that take his own ear off with us with, with a plastic dinner knife he's like this just taking it off because he and that was in the block in loudon grange he'd had enough and he, he just managed to get the top of it off and i thought well why why i was yeah. working broadly at the time I, I can understand now now i know more about self-harm back then i was just new i i, I think well, but now i've learned a lot more about mental health and coping mechanisms and strategies and, and, and life-changing experiences when you are young i can understand why it comes out now you know, but back then it's like i don't get it i don't get it and a lot of people love that same impression but you need to understand the person and one of my jobs inside was you get things called listeners and it's a person or a prisoner who is trusted and trained by the Samaritans to carry out the role of a Samaritan on the wings, and you'll be on call twenty four hours a day. And what you'll do is there's a, if there's a a resident who's who's in crisis, you will be called as a pair or two of you as listeners, to go into this person's cell and sit down with them and and help them through a difficult time, not to advise, but just to listen to what they're saying. And you'll sit there and you'll listen to them and you listen to a lot of people who've got major issues. It's taken advantage of people see it is another way to get things from A to B. Some people actually, actively become listeners in order to to find it as a way to get transport items from one part of the prison to another, because someone will say, yeah, I need a listener, and they'll know that this guy on certain wing is a listener, and I hope he's the one that's going to come to that cell. So it's very clever how the the staff do it, because it's on a rotor, and it's random, so you won't necessarily get the same listener come through, but that's something else. Hmm. So I'm trained as a a partner, as a Samaritan, to help people through bad times. So I understand, I've heard a lot of people say about, they've gone back about how they are and and it's just, it's quite worrying to think that half these people in prison probably shouldn't even be in there. You know, they they certainly should be somewhere more, therapy is what's needed, not locking. But unfortunately, the the system doesn't know how to cope with someone who's problematic. If they're they're kicking off and they've got issues with psychosis or, or, you know, um, paranoia, there's something there's a reason for that. It may be drug induced, but as the reason a is drug induced because they've got problems from the past as you said, Chris. So they're putting them in prison when really the safest place is to be in a hospital where they can get looked at, assessed and, and correctly medicated and treated. And that's not what's happening. They're being put in prison and given other medication, which maybe enough to keep them quiet, but it's not dealing with their demons. No. Yeah, it's hard. But I never never experienced anything negative personally, apart from when my my dad had a stroke. And a, and a severe accident. That was probably the phone call I was wishing I'd, I was hoping I was never going to get. He didn't die. He survived, luckily. But it was horrific. You know, it was touch and go for quite a while. And I was actually taken out, of, taken out in cuffs to go back down to Bristol to visit my dad, as, as known as an end of life visit. In other words, to say goodbye, Dad. I love you. You're going to die. He didn't die. He survived. Didn't he? It tough, tough as an old boot. But that was difficult. That was difficult. But other than that, fairly, fairly straightforward, mate.
0: And your book, Charlie Four Kilo, it's doing yeah. well,
1: mate. Yeah, do you know what? We, we, it was my plan B. Uh, when I, when I was on trial, I thought, I hope I get away with this and I'm going to sell off under the sunset and be a really good boy. And if I don't, I'll have to write a book about it because I think I've got enough content to do something. So it kind of remained dormant for quite a while because you can't actually write the book inside because it has to be on pen and paper and I have to redo it again. And things change and things. Move on, and but the book was always an was always an idea. And when I was doing these, lucky to do these various talks and presentations to the police and to military bases and and various other places, they said, "Oh, you should write a book, Chris." And I thought, I am thinking about it. So I started writing it in when I was being released on on a on a daily basis to to work in the the local visiting centre for the prison. I had access to a laptop. I've always got access to a laptop and I've thought, let's start writing now. I've got another year and a half, a year before I'm out. Let's start getting it down now. Didn't really have the name for it. I was going to call it The, the Lost Soldier, but with a lack of um, access to digital media, the, that name had already been taken under a couple of different things like a book and a game. And I thought, yeah, but that was the, the, the mindset. So I started writing it. And then when I came out um, last year, went very quiet. So I had time inside just to um, to focus on writing, and luckily I found a, a good friend of the family, a chap called Chris Knott, um, did a book called On Call Chopper, and he, he said, oh, if you have thought about a book yourself, and I, I said, well, I have started writing it, but I'm, I, I can't find anyone to, to publish yet. I can't find a literary agent, he said, well, I've got a guy, so I spoke to a chap called Robert Culpepper, and um, he said, we'll do the whole process for you, we'll, we'll take you from the original manuscript, he said, when you're done, I said, well, I think I'm about thousand words it. so well, bear in mind, every uh, the average book is looking at about eighty to 85,000 words, otherwise it's going a little bit too heavy. I thought, oh crap, I'm nearly there then, I thought I'm only, I'm only halfway, so I had to split this one into, into two parts. So yeah, I, I wrote Ch- Charlie, so we, we went for the name Charlie Four Kilo for two reasons, phonetic alphabet, it's technically a call sign, I don't know whose, it's mine now I guess, and for the obvious fact that it's Charlie and it's four kilos. Um, which I thought ran well with the industry where I came from, so it kind of a nice amalgamation of the the, the military and the and the, the organized crime side. So I finished it last spring, uh, and it's taken a while to get it published and typeset proofreading, proofread all the the stuff that you go through, you know how it works. And it finally got released uh, December last year, so it's only just come out. It's just it's just coming. You know, it, it's ticking over. I'm just starting the PR now. Um, I don't know how it's going because we don't know from don't quite know yet from the production how many copies have been sold. I don't know. I broke any records yet, but it is early days and it's a slow burner. But it's I've got so much content I can't do it in one book. I've got to do four. my um I think we can
0: dispense with the uh, microphone intrusion. Is the woodpecker been the, the woodpecker has stopped? <laughs> the shotgun is safely in its cabinet. No, folks, I <laughs> haven't got a shotgun. Um, Yeah, my best advice to you, mate, if you want a career in this game,
1: yeah,
0: that game, the writing game, is get you get your second book done, then you get third, fourth, fifth, until you got six or seven. They don't bounce off each other.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You see a lot of first-time authors do is just try to kick the house, kick the ass out of promoting one book. Yeah, or one book to one person. They're going to talk to maybe one other person about it. When you've got yeah. 10 books to 10 people talking to 10 yeah. other people, recommending yeah. to their posting to social media, then suddenly you, you you actually start to make a really decent well, you know, yeah. can make a really decent return. And with the audiobook scene now, there's another yeah. I've got to start the
1: audiobook in the spring. I'm gonna do it myself. I just got to learn to speak properly first so I'll have a go at that yeah um, no, you
0: got the fine voice for it. You, you, yours would be good done yourself i reckon yeah, yeah. so
1: I'm, I'm happy with it I, it's just mean it starts at part two which is a a section of my life which is absolute pandemonium i thought well i'll start at part two because it literally takes a segment of six months of my life which involves you know a few police arrests and a few things going on in my life and it just it sees my it really brings through the stress of as we spoke about the the world that i was involved in and it shines a light on the difficulties faced by a veteran and it is from a veteran's perspective as well not just someone involved but someone who's served in the forces and i'm trying to make it relatable and it takes to a point where you know where i leave on a cliffhanger because of the other things which So i move over to um start doing things overseas but it's all about paying a debt off basically
0: what you do what do you do, Rich, when you're not writing?
1: Well, at the minute, I'm, I've, 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 you know, coming out of prison at the age of, well, no, I'm 51 now. I was like just approaching 49. You're not that employable, so I was was working with, this is all stuff which is still happening, but we're doing it differently at the minute. I, I assist SAFA with training sessions with their staff that go into prisons. Um, I'll give them a talk about what to expect the sort of things a veteran will be suffering with. So I kind of give them a bit of a highlight on the areas of concern, which they're going to look at, just give them, a, you know, so they can go in over their eyes wide open at what what to expect, what to see. So I'll do a training session with SAFA. I do i um, setting something up with R. F. Cosford to go in and do talks with their recruits in the training camp about substance misuse. And there's something I'm looking at with different bases. Again, it hasn't quite gone off yet. Um, I've engaged with the MCTC to look at going down and speaking to guys being um, discharged with uh, substance misuse against them, and looking at delivering project TLS to them as a course as a part of their their transition out of um, out of the MCTC. I'm trying to engage with them. Again, that was at the back end of 2019. Uh, so there's loads of done, and do you know, at the minute, I'm working with uh, some good friends, company called We Like to Move It. they give me a job, and this is totally foreign for me. I'm working in removals, I am literally, it keeps me fit, keeps me healthy, couple of days a week just to, Get enough money to survive on, but enough to keep my. As so I got not projects here, this is a non-profit organisation where I work with these guys in removals. They donate me furniture through people who are say downsizing in the house, allows me to run my furniture bank for veterans who are moving into my house. I haven't got anything, so I've now got a load of stuff for donation to guys who are and girls are moving in somewhere and need. They might need a unit or a wardrobe or a bed. So I've got that. I've got a food bank going with Greg's Foundation where we collect unsold food on the night and deliver that to veterans who need it. So there's plenty of things that I'm doing keeping me busy. Uh, I'm just waiting for the, the, the course. I've recently had a chat with a, a large private healthcare company, want me to go back into the prison deliver my course across the Midlands. We're just looking at that this hopefully this month. If we get the green light on that, that'll be that'll be life changing. It means I can deliver that course to all the veterans in the Midlands are in. So fantastic. So there's plenty on um, I'm doing and and writing at the minute is probably the on the on the side. I just want to sort of give it a few months, get the audio book done and I'll start part two back end in the summer, I think, and just dive into that. But a lot of it is really hanging in the balance depending on what goes on with this healthcare company. If I get a thumb thumbs up on that I will know my routine then. I'll know what time I've got aside, what I'm working. Um, if I don't get the thumbs up on that for now, I'll just have to wait until things sort of settle down this year and see where it goes. So, the minute I'm doing everything, I'm a dad. I've got two sons. Well, they're grown up, but I spend a lot of time with kids. You see how I'm uh, I'm pretty busy, pretty busy. Good man. Rich, listen, massive thank you for coming on the
0: podcast. I'm yeah, a very you. lucky man, mate, that I get to just sit and chat to wonderful people with amazing stories that are doing so much for our veterans family and it's not just that is it this is this is an education for all people that you know you didn't hear this stuff when i was a young person no one was rushing out to help me when i was you know living in utter squalor and not far from death most of the time (laughs) Um, so thank you ever so much i'm going to put your links below the video
1: Okay, thank you.
0: So, anyone listening, this Rich is your man. If you need some some consultancy advice, yeah. you know you're in a situation where you you need some answers. They they there you go, you know. Um, yeah. And obviously, we'll put the link for your book as well.
1: Thank you, Chris.
0: And um, just just stay on the line, Rich. So massive thank you to you, mate. I really really appreciate it. Massive love as always to all of our subscribers. Um, you guys are really just turning into an awesome, well, you probably already were an awesome bunch of people, (laughs) but the kind comments that are flooding in now and the support we get for telling, you know, this part of life that has always been hidden by mainstream media. Um, it's, yeah, it's really making this a very worthwhile job. If I could just ask you guys to like. And subscribe and click the little bell because I get a lot of messages from people. Chris, I didn't get, you know, I didn't know you did a podcast with so and so. If you click the bell, you will. That's it. I'm out of here. Thank you. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall, Instagram Chris. Doctor. Thank you.